the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce today's guests, that is that yes, that is plural. Um, just want to mention that we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Shout out to all the patrons who are already supporting the show and anybody that's enjoying the content. Um, definitely, we have a you know dollar a month options, something like that. If, if you're feeling generous, um, all of that money goes back into the show and and so forth. So we really appreciate anyone who decides to do that. Um, but um, actually, should first of all, I've got to apologize to one of our guests today. Lewis. I, I prostrate myself before you and beg for <laughs> your forgiveness for not inviting you on the show sooner. Oh, don't worry about it. Thanks for having me now. <laughs> oh, of course. I don't know why I didn't think about doing a combined episode. I guess like I tend to like having both people or like everyone in person, like face to face. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe that's what it was. But yeah, now I'm like, fuck, we should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's, it's no big deal. As a person really? who edits our podcast, I understand. Like, you know, it's, 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 it, it can be more convenient when you have everybody in the same place. So I get that. Yeah. Um, but today we're going to look at the uh, 2013 Ridley Scott film. Oh, shit. I, fuck, I messed up and didn't even intru introduce Nick today. So we've got both both hey. <laughs> both hosts from from Proletarian Contrarian today, Nick and Lewis. Yeah. Um, as usual, I'm here for a movie um, episode, and I have Lewis with me here to do a movie. Um, so it all makes sense. Yes. Very excited. Thanks for so, having me. Hell yeah. Uh, so we got a shout out this who is it? La oh, it's labor. Labor giant is labor giant. Yeah. Yes. Our labor boy. giant. <laughs> Our boy. Shout out. Shout out there. Number one fan for uh, yeah. for both shows. Uh, hopefully we can uh, get some uh, some bingo points on this one <laughs> off of his nice bingo card. That's true. Yeah. Nice. Um, true. I'll try and say ostensibly a few times. <laughs> there you go. And here's another one. Ostensibly, that's mine too. <laughs> but I don't know if, if one of you wants to take the lead as just kind of giving us a rundown of proletarian contrarian and i think most people will be familiar just on the amount of times you've been on the show nick but yeah I, i've already done it a couple of times so lewis so i'll throw yeah, it to you toss it to go. you <laughs> so proletarian contrarian um is a film podcast um nick and i host uh, a weekly film podcast um we reevaluate uh crappy films um so films that either are box office bombs or have a um you know maligned critical critical reception or just kind of a murky critical reception um so uh, we actually are releasing uh an episode today and i actually you know it's interesting i think our episode today kind of uh, aligns with this one in, in certain it themes. It does. You're right. Yeah, right? Um, but uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> we're not we, here we, to we can touch just on that plug our end, podcast. End, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we ha I think we... I threw out a few choices for the episode, and I think it was like, there will be blood, 
Mm-hmm. That was that was one of them. The um, Aviator was another. Avi- yeah, th- those were the three. It was Aviator, There Will Be Blood, and then this. So I don't know, Lewis, you were kind of the one that you were all about doing The Counselor. What? A, yes. <laughs> will you tell maybe tell us about why that was your pick, other than the Cameron Diaz having sex with the Ferrari scene. <laughs> well, that was definitely number one for me. I remember hearing about that. That was like the buzz around this film. I mean, if yes. there was really any buzz around this film, it was the mm-hmm. Cameron Diaz having sex with a car scene, which did not disappoint. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, but I thought it was a perfect crossover film for both your podcast and our podcast um, because we you review films and we only review shitty films. Um, so this was the only one that was like, uh, you know, truly considered, uh, you know, um, definitely well actually no it's not a box office bomb it made back more than twice um its budget but uh, it just it did not get a, much of a critical reception so um i thought that would be perfect and you know i do enjoy the cinema of ridley scott and uh, this is the only film that Cormac mccarthy did a screenplay for so i thought that would be interesting as well yeah it's actually a good choice because it is kind of like this maligned film but i think there's there's actually it's it's definitely underrated. I, yeah. It's definitely a problematic mm-hmm. movie as far as, you know, there's, it's got its seams and so forth, right, throughout. Oh, yeah. I was particularly um, attracted to the, the McCarthy byline. Oh, yeah. That's just, that, like, yeah. it's especially his only film script, I think. That's just a fast, like, that alone kind of makes this movie worth paying attention to, I think. I felt this was, the movie is sort of like, no Country for Old Men Part Two. Oh and yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It, it is the contemporary spiritual sequel to No, to no Country. I think absolutely. Yeah. But like, it also has that same kind of vibe to RoboCop Two. So it's like <laughs> very <laughs> like thematically similar, <laughs> but just not like executed quite as as well. Right, and still kind of gets more more derision than it deserves. I think in both cases. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. Um, just some of the characters you know they are kind of just like nick said the contemporary version of the no country for old men characters Mm -hmm. um and then you know of course the setting itself and and then you know the storyline right i mean it's 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 there's a lot of crossover between this film and and that film um which is interesting because like obviously cormac mccarthy can write more than that you know i've read some of his books um he writes westerns um he writes kind of your southern gothic fables um, but for some reason, you know, this is what he wanted to write for his first screenplay. I don't know. Interesting choice. Definitely. So Lou already mentioned that the film made its money back and the budget was estimated at 25 mil, which actually, you know, is pretty low for a, a Hollywood film like this with a cast yeah. like this. Oh, yeah. And, and ostensibly. <laughs> Damn it. I was going to go. I was going to use ostensibly. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking of it. There you go. You there stepped you... on my line. Got <laughs> I'm sorry. But like <laughs> ostensibly like an international picture, too, because like there's the Denmark scenes in the in the England scenes. Who, who, I mean, who knows? That could, could have just been a sense. Well, no, actually, but... the whole film was shot in Europe. Like not a single scene in really? this film was shot in America. Yeah. Whoa. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Yeah, so I assume like probably Spain for some of the desert sure. scenes. Um, that is you know, crazy. Damn. Yeah, I, I didn't look more into it, but I did see that it was entirely shot in Europe. Interesting. Hmm. It looked like I mean the shots at the at least the beginning 
where you're getting sort of that like uh, panoramic view of of Juarez looked pretty authentically Juarez, but yeah, like maybe maybe those pickup scenes, like the yeah. the panoramic right. scenes, were shot in on location. Yeah, I, that's possible. Um, yeah, my understanding was that. Um, yeah, just what, like I said, um, mostly European production. But I mean, you know, those those shots could even be from another movie, right? True. Or just like B roll yeah. or, right. or something that you know they found that they could they could use, um, or, or CGI. Who knows? But I mean, I agree, it did look pretty authentic those Juarez scenes. And then, uh, so the movie actually only grossed like sixteen mil in the states, but then I think total worldwide gross was like seventy five. Mm. Which I think is an interesting contrast. Is that like, I wonder if that's just the sophistication of the audience or what drove that? Or just maybe the star power alone of like, you know what I mean? In terms of uh, foreign box office. Yeah, in, in 2013, I'm trying to think like what else was coming at that time. Like I, I, I could see this movie not doing well at that time, at least, at least stateside. Um, I know, like Marvel movies have kind of been around, and we'll, we'll hit our we'll hit our hobby horse. Lewis Marvel movies <laughs> have been around already. Um, we did it. Wow, how many bingo? That's two bingo. Cards. I know, Jesus. I hope that's yeah. That's three plus the free space right there. Labor giant, <laughs> do not turn this into a drinking game. Um, but like that was kind of like the the noontide of the Marvel feeling, I think, and I I think oh, just yeah. audience sensibilities were a little different than like kind of the meditative slow burn that this movie turned out to be. Yeah, well, you know, this film is kind of the the elusive, like, um, you know, middle ground, middle budget film, the small budget film that people are always talking about doesn't exist anymore, right? Like, these are yeah. kind of the films that were made right. in the uh, the new Hollywood era, and then continually throughout the 80s and 90s, we see films like this being made, um, even by people like Ridley Scott, and then, you know, films like this kind of drop off the map um, in the late half of like the aughts basically so we really yeah. don't have a lot of films that are made for 25 million dollars anymore that get uh ostensibly a wide release <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that, that that is a good point it kind of really did feel like a late 80s early 90s crime movie um it, it, it certainly doesn't look like it but it definitely kind of had that um that tone i think yeah, for sure. I mean, this film to me feels like a neo-noir, um, which yeah. we talked about on our uh, 8 Million Ways to Die episode, you know, a genre that came out of the original post-war film noir period and then just continued um, again through this day, but was super popular in like the 70s and 80s, making films like um, uh, Body Heat, which is actually referenced in this film when they talk about Mickey Rourke. Um, mm. And we could talk about that a little later. Right, 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 right. Um, between Brad Pitt and Fassbender. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, this is uh, again, uh, and that's a genre we don't really see all that often anymore. The neo noir, um, and I and I and I, we could talk about it a little later when we talk about some of the characters. But I think this is one of their better versions of, of a neo noir because I think it has a lot of the key elements of the original noir films, except for like the visual style which is oh yeah mm -hmm. typically like you have the dark shadowy this was like very a very bright palette to for the most part like i think oh, yeah. like 85 percent of the movie is extremely colorful yeah and um that there's actually an interesting contrast with some of like the outdoor shots that when we get to kind of more cinematography i can get into that too yeah but as usual we're, we're going to kind of run through acting cinematography uh writing 
some miscellaneous stuff and then wrap things up in terms of themes. So I'll just get us started off in terms of our actors. Uh, I think the first first one that comes up here is uh, Javier Bardem <laughs> as Reiner. Yes. Yes. Uh, my, my galaxy brain take is that this is Anton Chigurh's son. <laughs> <laughs> that hair, yeah, right? yeah. Just the crazy hair and the, I don't know, the, the McCarthy like undercurrent. Let's see. In terms of his look, the mm-hmm. I, I did like as a fashion oriented person, I did notice like he's he's got the Versace like silk shirts. Yes. He's got like the Versace fucking like jewelry and shit. He has like spike ball like hair. It's just, his hair is ridiculous. Mad mad uh, toner going on or like no, bron- <laughs> yes. bronze, bronzer yes. rather. Oh my god, that he's bronzer bronze was yeah, <laughs> it was great. Doing overtime there is pretty. That was incredible. Um, no, he's good. His, his accent was really funny. Like he, he I, I mean, he didn't sound like himself like he usually does. But I couldn't right. really, I couldn't really place what he was doing with his voice. Yeah, he does have that. I mean, just in general, he has that kind of weird. Like, there's this something it's unique like, about his voice. Kind of like clipped, and the way he ends his words is really yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. My favorite part was the way that he pronounced counselor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he um yeah he edit that out (laughs) yeah so uh he plays a character called uh reiner and he well i guess we really don't really know what he does he's just kind of a playboy type and he's uh he's mixed up with the mob i was i was gonna say ostensibly he's mixed up with the cartel (laughs) no it's uh, it's very apparent (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's very apparent. He, he well, he's he's a restaurateur, right? Like that's yeah. he, or a nightclub owner. Yeah, he wants um, he wants to make like a a fancy nightclub. Get all the girls in here. We're gonna get knock this wall down. Just he's just like all yeah, yeah. all into it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has a bunch of cheat. Well, he has two cheetahs, but he also is very into cheetah symbolism. Or I guess well, I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's a little bit more of Cameron Diaz's thing, but he's also <laughs> into oh, yeah. cheetahs. Yeah, um, he is. He's friends with, I guess, the next character we can discuss, uh, the counselor Fassbender. Um, they're they're kind of friendly business partners, and um, they they need money. That like, like they're looking to get seed money for, I guess, their their fancy new nightclub, and that's kind of like the instigating action of all of all this um, that goes down. But the titular character, the counselor, is played by Fassbender. Um, and he was a little miscast, I think. Yeah. He yeah. he's too he's too hot and he's too like confident and and I guess it's kind of thematically the point that like he, it's all bravado and there's nothing beneath it. But I, I couldn't really I couldn't really buy into it that much. Yeah, definitely. He he actually felt a little bit more like he was kind of sensitive. I thought mm-hmm. more so than like this cold, calculated kind of person and that does somewhat I think contradict a little bit with like the character and right and the film overall but the most the worst for me like his Texas accent was just so oh, bad yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of Christian Bale's like Batman voice because it's a lot of like it's, it's so offended yeah yeah he's just trying way too hard he really he really bites into those American words like and, and you can see his kind of lower chin jut out so he, he literally is like biting into his words here 
Yeah, no, it was not very convincing. Um, but I really, yeah, I, I don't know why he did. Well, I know why he did this movie because he uh, was um, contacted by Ubisoft uh, Motion Pictures. So Amazing. Ubisoft's um, uh, film production wing, um, they wanted to make the Assassin's Creed movie. That's and incredible. he said he would co-produce it because uh, he has some company, what's it called? D DMC films. Um, he he's not a gamer. He has no interest in the Assassin's Creed games, but he wanted to be able to produce a movie. So uh, he got. <laughs> um, I think twenty twentieth century Fox made this movie, The Counselor. So he got them to fund this movie and Assassin's Creed um, by agreeing to be in The Counselor. Now you know who knows Fuck, how that deal works out. But fucking gaming strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> That is crazy. Is that another yeah. bingo square now? Yeah. Gaming. Maybe it should be. It should be. Next time, uh, Labor Giant, next time you make one, uh, <laughs> game, put, put something about gaming. Awkward gaming reference. <laughs> but yeah, I think he's just, um, you know, he, I think he's definitely miscast, but I think the character is also just like inappropriately written. I think he should be either like maybe uh, more of an actual loser uh, or schlubbier or something. I don't know. It's just there's something that doesn't fit with even just the character in this world. Speaking of um, parallels between characters, just I I almost saw this as like a contemporary update of um, William H Macy from Fargo, mm. but I and and I think if we take that tack, like being more polished, being more superficially successful would be appropriate. But I I still think you can have those things, but take it in a different direction than what Fassbender was doing here. Yeah, and that's maybe where it comes into just a different, like, someone else in the role, right? Like, if we yeah, want to have yeah. those aspects of the character, I don't know. Just I'm also just not the biggest Fassbender fan. Um, this yeah, might get me canceled. I was, I was thinking that when I saw this movie. I'm like, Lewis hates this guy. <laughs> I, do, I really do hate Michael Fassbender. Um, the film Hunger, uh, about um, Bobby Sands, uh, the the wow. IRA uh, hunger striker. Right. Um, he's just dog shit in that movie, and I think that movie's dog shit and does a disservice to Bobby Sands. Mm. Um, uh, next time, Labor Giant, you do a bingo card, uh, put something about the IRA on there also. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm just not a big Michael Best fan, Fassbender fan in the first mm. place. Um, but what do you... You know what? He was actually... So he was... Okay, going to... What's the fucking... Uh, the other Ridley Scott, like Prometheus character. Prometheus. So he's, so he's David in that, right? He, yeah, he's the Andrew. Yes. It almost feels yeah. like that Dave, like this is David. It's, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. He's got yeah. a very kind of lo robotic, like he's trying yep. to emote, but he like yep. can't really do it very well. Yeah. That's why that's his best role. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think he he was the best in Inglorious Bastards. It's like oh yeah, as Lieutenant Lieutenant Hickox. Yeah, yes. the, uh, his, yeah. His, his James Bond um, impression. I right. Think. Yeah. No, he he, was he didn't have to do much because he's British. So yeah. I think I think he also had an interesting portrayal of Magneto in some of the X Men movies. Uh, yeah, um, that's true. Like Days of Future Past, and and more specifically uh, the the time travel. Um, is a future past, but the other one I was thinking of was First Class. First Class, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I think he's good at that as well. I'll, I'll throw him some bones, I guess. Just a random aside, I think he and Tom Hardy like both went to the same acting school, or like they were contemporaries at the time, hmm. which 
I definitely prefer of the two Tom Hardy <laughs> if I have to oh, pick. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. no, no question. Uh, I'm sorry Tom Hardy's skill didn't rub off on you, Michael Fassbender. Ah, <laughs> shots fired. Uh, someone that was straight up good in this movie was Brad Pitt, I thought, um, as, as Westray, who's, again, to continue with the analogies, he, he's very similar to, um, to Woody Harrelson in No yeah. Country. Um, kind of the, the, the somewhat sympathetic, somewhat, um, somewhat helpful, like, figure who's wrapped up in the, in the crime life, um, and tries to warn the main character away, but, but their advice goes unheeded and they, they, they just basically ask, act as like a portent of doom. Mm. Yeah. He's very much like the bridge between the two worlds. Right. So that's mm-hmm. exactly what Harrelson's character is. Right. Cause you know, yeah. in, in no country, Harrelson kind of warns Lewin, Lewin Moss, um, Llewellyn, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah. Llewellyn Moss, uh, Brolin's character, like, Hey, this is what's going to happen. Um, because I know this guy, you know, I know Anton Chigurh. So in this movie, Brad Pitt's like, he definitely, he's more in the cartel world, uh, than Fassbender is, who he warns him and all that. Yeah, it's 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 very similar, um, somewhat almost annoyingly so for me. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I appreciate his performance. I think yeah. like he he's good. Can you call Brad Pitt an underrated actor? Is that is that a thing that's allowed? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's getting more. The kid's uh, got range. I th- yeah. I think. I, I, yeah. I, th- I think he's getting more, a lot more like artsy cred now than he had at the beginning of his career, for sure. Um, at the beginning of his career, he was definitely seen as like the heartthrob, the, the himbo, just the yeah, the ult- yeah, like, like yeah. The, the ultimate, just like extreme, so attractive he doesn't even have to try. Right. But um, but I don't know. He he definitely has expanded his range, um, especially lately. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got like comedic chops. Um, we see that a little bit in this movie. Mm-hmm. We have obviously have seen that in films like Burn After Reading, mm. um, and I and I even think you know um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he gets to show those comedic chops yeah. as well. Twelve um, Monkeys I just, Two, I think, is one that yeah one a performance that comes to mind as a really strong example of kind of what he can do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I just if I had to recast this movie and also travel back in time. I would recast this with uh, 10 years younger Mickey Rourke, um, mm, yep. mainly because I love Mickey Rourke, um, and because I just I feel like this movie also, and if I could um, recast the director, I would also <laughs> recast t- uh, Tony Scott as opposed to Ridley Scott. Ooh, um, uh, an interesting note there that we'll touch on at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Mickey Rourke is kind of just like the... The, the the perfect um like side character in a Tony Scott movie. Right. Um, and and he would look kind of more savage, I think, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is appropriate. Which I think is kind of being hinted on with like the appearance of Pitt. He does like his face wise, like he does mm-hmm. have kind of a you know what I mean, there's a little bit of like a weathered kind of like implication that he's seen some shit right. to some degree. Although not yeah. like fully like not like Mickey Rourke. Yeah, kind of shit. Meat, like right. Tenderized meat or something. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I think it is funny, though, that you mentioned Rourke, because have either of you seen the movie Spun at all, by chance? No. No. So it's, uh, it's a little-known film, but it's got, like, Brittany Murphy. Uh, it's oh, hell yeah. It's Jason Schwartzman. It's fucking um, Mickey Rourke is in it, and he's, like, this meth, basically a meth cook. And he's hardcore grizzled, and he wears the cowboy hat. So yeah. that's why Amazing. I was kind of wondering if you were like, 
transferring that that image of Rourke <laughs> to to this kind of role. He was subconsciously. It just happened. Like it Pro- just came yeah. to him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll have to uh, at some point. I'll have to do that movie. It's been so long, but Mickey Rourke has this fucking great scene in that movie about like his mother drowning puppies. Oh damn! Yeah, it's, that's... it's fucking great. <laughs> damn. <laughs> and Brit- Brittany Murphy, that's she's great too. He probably couldn't do that movie now because, like, he has chihuahuas that he loves. Right. He probably couldn't deliver that kind of monologue anymore. <laughs> or he could. It would be. It would. It would ring that much more real. Oh, yeah, that's true. All right. So, so we fawned over Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Um, what about Cameron Diaz? She might be Oof. our next. In the like in the in terms of billing, she's our next. Yeah, actor, def- right? Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm not normally a huge fan of her, but I thought. And and I didn't like love her performance in this movie, but this movie made me like her more as an actor, if that makes sense. Um, I I just think she. They needed. They basically needed to do a couple more takes or kind of massage the material yeah. a bit more. But like she she was good and she was appropriate for the role. Um, and I mean not to not to beat the not to beat the um, parallel parallels with no country like over and over again but like she she was kind of more similar to sugar just like a yeah a twist on right on sugar good call i like that yeah you know um she's definitely the the femme fatale of of yep. you know uh film noir uh styling um and, I, and that's why I think this film works as a neo-noir. Uh, unlike uh, the film we had reviewed, Eight Million Ways to Die, that film didn't have uh, a femme fatale character. This film right. most clearly has a femme fatale character. Um, and I think she she embodies that role well. Um, and I, I like some of the, the characterizations, right? So, like, she is... Her character's name is Malkina, I think. Yeah. Yes. And she's from a Caribbean nation, so she's a white lady from a Caribbean nation. Mm. Um, Good catch. So you can just yeah. assume, you know, she escaped Barbados there because... Is the name. Yeah, right, yeah. Barbados. She escaped there. Her family escaped there because, like, you know, they're racist. Um, and she's she's really, uh, you know, she's in it for the money. She's in this cartel business for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's the character who drives a lot of this plot more than anybody, too, with her double dealing. Yeah, for sure. Um, she she definitely embodies that like sexuality, female sexuality is inherently dangerous aspect of neo noir. Like it, it it is a yeah. trap that will that will get you in the end, and um and it will get you in the end just because she's so good at it, the sex and the the violence part of it. Right. So one thing that's interesting but, in the dialogue is she mentions that her parents were thrown out out of a helicopter. Yes. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Was that like a so take socialists and helicopter rides. Yeah, kind that's of thing. what I'm, like, I'm. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if that's a reference point to what was it like Pinochet or like Pinochet, one of the South yeah. American uh, dictators. I forget which it was, but that was like the practice to throw mm-hmm. communists or socialists out out of the helicopter. As seen in Scarface. Yeah. Exactly. Not, not, I mean, right. Yeah. I forgot about that line. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that even adds another element to her character, right? Like, what is what is really her motivation beyond just money? What is she, her background? She mentions to the priest when she goes to the faux confession that her parents died when she was three, and they right. and they fell out of a helicopter over the Atlantic Ocean. So that it, it could just be an accident. Um, but wow, I definitely think the implication is they were for they sure. Were they, they were, yeah, they were I think she out. even yeah. says 
literally thrown out. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, think so. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that that's a better read anyway, and it's sufficiently ambiguous that I prefer it. So <laughs> <laughs> Nick is going with the official the uh, the state license. The state line. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a comprador. I'm reading the state line right now. Exactly. <laughs> but, but no, uh, she she was good. She was um definitely kind of like the 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 heart of the movie. I think her um the, her performance kind of. She, she's like the one character that is is in touch with everybody else and, and kind of connects them i stepped right. on your line a little bit there lewis with with that uh the helicopter story you were gonna you were gonna point out something do you, do you oh, remember what that was uh, <laughs> i don't remember but i will say i also appreciated her very trashy uh like cheetah tattoo that oh, she I, has oh, it's, it's it's hot um, cooper cooper doesn't yeah. think it's trashy <laughs> I, I love it yeah i love her whole aesthetic like her cat's eye makeup the haircut yep. like yeah the silver like the chrome like nail polish like she gave yes. she gave me heavy um like the wonder woman villain cheetah vibes oh yeah mm-hmm. who's, uh i believe uh kristen wig is playing cheetah in the upcoming wonder woman movie yeah that's right um i also like her outfit in the last scene where she has the little hood yes yeah that was very apparently she added that like hood onto that outfit uh is my understanding cameron diaz did yeah, she no, was like, good. "This outfit's cool, but I want a hood on it." That's great. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's I, I like when actors add little touches like that. That like really, especially like cosmetic things. That's 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 just, that's, that's, that's just like a cool thing to see. Yeah, that last scene though, I felt like Nick said they needed a few more takes. That was the, like yeah. the the words that McCarthy wrote were fantastic, but I was just like, "Oh God, this is this is so bad." <laughs> that was like the yeah. worst scene is her whole like final ending monologue to the film. I just was like, uh, and, and again, I, I have to go back to it. The old reliable, um, the last country of, of the last scene of no country, um, with the Tommy Lee Jones dialogue. I, I right. think they were going for something similar to that. Just like yeah. this cold, brutal soliloquy that just wraps everything up and, and, and there is no true emotional resolution. Cause like, that's how life is. And like, right. it's just encapsulating everything. But, um, yeah, she, it, it just didn't, reach the heights that the Tommy Lee Jones dialogue did. No. Yeah. I think the problem is like, yeah, sure. I think Cameron Diaz has actual like range. Um, but again, I do think she was miscast outside of like her aesthetics. I think she mm-hmm. was fairly miscast in this film. Uh, she embodies the character in so much as like, she looks like the character, but yeah, I mean the majority of her dialogue, um, I couldn't separate like how she delivered the dialogue from the actual dialogue right. while I was watching. So for me, I was just like, this dialogue is all bad. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I'm trying to think of someone else. Like maybe Charlize Theron would have been better. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I could see that. She, she, mm-hmm. she can be kind of more like unyielding with her, with her gaze kind of in that. Cameron Diaz just seems like nicer in like, in like real yeah. life. So mm-hmm. But, um, but but for that, she did look the part, definitely, I think. What if they would have cast Rihanna in this role? Because she actually is Holy from Barbados. That, <laughs> that's right. Is perfect. Damn. That is a very good call. That would have been amazing. And it's especially oh. in 2013, too, because like, she's still popular now. But like back then, she was... Yeah, back then. She was really blowing right. up. Rihanna with that cheetah tattoo? Yes. <laughs> yes. Damn. <laughs> There's an alternative universe where that exists, <laughs> and it's my favorite movie now. Oh my God. But, and that would have been, <laughs> yeah. the The only thing against that is she would have been a little too young. I yeah. think. I think um, Diaz's age kind of 
worked into the aesthetic better. Not that she, yeah. not that she's super old, but she's older than than like you would expect a femme fatale to be. Right. Yeah. But yeah, what if that, we just googled right now and actually Cameron Diaz and Rihanna are the same age? I mean, they're not. But what if that was? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll keep... What if you're just wrong there entirely? <laughs> but I know I'm not. So uh, no, that, you're that hypothetical you're is definitely useful. right with it's that. Useless. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that's a very good call. That would have been amazing. I love that. Like the next kind of, in terms of actors that are billed, uh, Lewis in the notes just says Penel- Penelope Cruz is also in this movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she uh, she shows up. Um, she does something. She's a plot device. She's good. Like she, she does play. Like I don't know. Maybe it's the freckles that give her like a certain um, pathos. Yeah, she kind of. I, I really think it is the freckles. It's, honestly, it's the hundred percent. It's the freckles. <laughs> she kind of looks like Nico Lull. Like she gave me like I'm the older Nico. <laughs> oh, Jesus, <laughs> you're right. And just the way her hair was styled, she's like, "Hey, this will be Nico Lull in like 25 years or whatever." Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So she plays uh, Fastbender, the counselor's uh, girlfriend, then fiance, then wife. Like in a matter of I don't know how many days this movie takes place, but I guess they get married. Well, I at the end, I I think an important symbolic distinction is that he proposes to her and she accepts but they don't actually get married right i I think but then like at the end doesn't the guy say like your wife and he doesn't like correct her or anything um i don't know maybe that's just me being pedantic well no i mean that that's that's legit legit but like i maybe just jefe the 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 cartel boss just didn't know that they weren't actually married but like probably i i and, and maybe i'm misreading but i could see it being um symbolically like significant that they never actually had a marriage yeah yeah i agree um yeah they just they know each other somehow they get engaged um and she was she, she was fine she she delivered her lines like well it just she, there, there were there literally wasn't much screen time her best yeah. scene was where she's getting dumped in the garbage that was <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say when she was getting head from Michael Fassbender. Uh, getting head. No, no. Like isn't no, she, she literally She rolls the, down a hill well. Isn't uh, she like lit- I can't remember like it almost felt like the head was still attached, but I it No, I think she yeah, the her corpse was all in one piece. Right. Yeah, she was spoilers. all in one piece. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers, she dies. Um, uh, yeah, no, I I think they I don't think they chopped her off. They, you're 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 getting that confused with the other huge beheading scene. Well, I'm thinking yes. of the uh, so the story of the snuff film. They mentioned right. that like the they behead the young the, woman and then right. the, someone comes in and like has sex with the corpse. So I was expecting, you know, we'll get into that whole snuff film angle, but that's why I was <laughs> this thinking. Movie gets I was, wild, folks. I couldn't quite tell like <laughs> if her head like I thought that was maybe the implication was that exactly that. Um, snuff film bit happened to her um which i think is kind of yeah but i mean i, I don't think it matters because that was that was rainer that was telling him yeah. that so like as long as right. she dies is, is the point i guess um yeah were there, were there any other uh, performances we wanted to highlight um 
I know that Lewis mentioned Bruno Ganz, the, the diamond yeah, dealer. Yeah, Bruno Ganz is also in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. For two hot seconds, he's a diamond dealer in Amsterdam, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and he has a monologue about something. Again, I can't <laughs> even tell you what the monologue is. Uh, it, like this is the case of I thought his acting was good, but I just don't. The words weren't. The words didn't work for me uh, in movie form. Uh, I don't know. I blame McCarthy here. I, again, I love you, Corin McCarthy, but I blame you for this this monologue. <laughs> Did either of you know of, I wasn't, so I've only, at least that I am aware of, seen him in this film. Is Does he have like some international renown or are you were you familiar with him at all before, Lewis? Uh, yeah, he's in uh, my favorite film of all time, Wings of Desire. Um, he plays the main angel in that film. Uh, and he also plays Hitler in the film Downfall. Interesting. Okay. I could see him. Um, he kind of yeah. has, could have a Hitler look to him. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's especially when he was younger too. Swedish, or I, I can't remember where he's from. I don't actually think he's German. I think we found that out when we did our City of Angels episode that Bruno Ganz is not actually from Germany, but he's, he's like a Swiss actor. Sweet, he's a he's Swiss. That's right. He's Swiss, uh, but he's he's acted in a lot of uh, German films mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, French films and so on and so forth, and American films as well, like like this. He did have a certain gravitas, I think that worked well but i think what you're probably rubbing up against is the the kind of element i think we can get into this with the writing discussion but Mm. this film is kind of like more of in some ways sort of a a play type like it's a theater element. you know what i mean with these with these significant monologues and so forth right it's a little bit awkward i think and a lot of the set pieces could easily be excised and alluded to um, like the the yep. the awesome wire execution scene that could like it was cool and I I really appreciate how inventive and like in st- visually stunning it was but like that could just be alluded to in in a monologue, right? Structure, you know, structurally, I guess. You know what's funny is we're actually like leaving out Rosie Perez and her. Oh, oh my god, in, I forgot. Well, she she's literally only in two scenes. Two scenes. But she she's yeah. a very significant presence and she's great. Yeah, she is good. The yeah. lack of makeup, was, yes, was really good. A yep. good choice. She was great. She was really believable. Yeah, she essentially plays um, a high-ranking cartel figure of some sort um, who's imprisoned, and Fassbender's counselor character is is literally her 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 counsel. Um, right. Yeah, and, and the banter between them, it it, it just it. It wasn't like, oh, super snarkastic, like, oh, we're just going to trade insults, right. but we really, mm-hmm. oh, we kind of like it. It was just like, you're you're working for me in this state-appointed hell, and um, you you show me a little bit of kindness, and I'll smile about it. Like, it, it, it felt, it, I guess it was quote-unquote snarky, but it still felt real and believable. No, it was good. Yeah, I know. It was, it was a good scene um, between both of them. Um, it had a lot of, uh, for me, it had a lot of vibes of um, Michael Mann's film Manhunter, um, which is uh, part of the mm. uh, Hannibal Lecter series, one of the uh, I, uh, the first yeah, film yeah, of first the Hannibal film. Lecter series. Yeah. Um, and Lecter's cell is like all white. Um, and, and this scene is in like, you know, the, the the room where you can talk to your visitor and that like it's all white and it's just, it had a lot of that feel to it. She's in a, a full white jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just... Um, it was really well directed, well like you know, good art direction in this scene, good costuming as well. Right. Uh, I guess the only other significant what? character was the the priest character. Oh yeah, 
I mean, a good, great act. I love that actor. Um, he was also in Zero Dark Thirty. But I, that character has, I don't know, he has a, I don't know, there's something great about his, like, Edgar, his vibes are good. Edgar Ramirez. But he's got great <laughs> vibes. Uh, I love him, like, he's got, his gravitas as well is, it's so perfect for the role as the priest, I think. Yeah. We, I just like the way, like, he walked away from her <laughs> in the confessional. Like, he was just, it's like, it had, it was, yeah, it was good. He did a good walk away. <laughs> he did a good walk away. Uh, oh, and there's one. There's one more character. Uh, Hefe. The, there's um, more. So there. Oh yeah, Ruben Blades. Ruben Blades as yeah. Hefe was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, especially the last discussion he has with with Fassbender. Um, yeah. yeah. I he, bet all his scenes were like in one one day, even. Oh, probably. Yeah, because it's he doesn't leave that room. That yeah. he's, he just stays. <laughs> he, has, he has a coffee. He he has a he has a he has a whiskey. He just sits in the chair. It's like just hanging out. If you want to see Ruben Blades as well, in uh, you got to check out Predator Two. He's got a pretty strong role there. Uh, who is he in Predator Two? He's like huh. the partner that gets killed by the Predator. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's in the movie for like the first five minutes, if that, right? I think he he goes to investigate the first like quarter of the movie. Yeah, he goes to like investigate okay. the penthouse, and then he gets like invisible shuriken thrown through him or something oh that's right yeah because the predator goes and kills like a bunch of like drug dealers in a penthouse first yes. right and then yeah. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah okay i think he's the cop that goes to return to investigate yeah interesting <laughs> i have not seen that film in in uh probably over a decade i remember watching it in my uh grandparents house on a portable dvd player oh yeah if anybody out there remembers <laughs> those things <laughs> oh we, oh we remember dvds from this movie <laughs> <laughs> yes um but yeah i guess we can get into the the writing comes next right writing well i segment. think we're actually leaving out so i think yeah i guess writing is probably the better his uh, his monologue that we'll discuss in the writing section is just fantastic yeah but what was there another performance you wanted to there actually there's so there's a couple of other actors sure notably i think it's uh dean norris is oh yeah from breaking yeah, yeah, bad yeah, yeah. and john leguizamo as well Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That was. Yep. Who was yes. per, John Leguizamo was great. Like his. There, yes. That was a nice little. Actually, that was the most humorous kind of like yes. breaking the dark kind of dirge that the film is up. It, it, yeah. it, it, that was tone perfect. But although it was like it was still a little bit dark too because they have the, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really funny story. Actually, they're talking about how. The fucking, I guess the Colombians ostensibly yep. are the ones that are responsible for <laughs> like shipping these barrels that the drugs are in, and then like they sent them in, like a dead body is kind of like a sick joke or whatever. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. throughout the entire movie, we see just these these four barrels full of cocaine like being shipped all the way from like the middle of Mexico up to up to the states, um, and we're like, okay, four barrels, got it. Four barrels full of cocaine, got it. And then they unload three of the barrels and like, oh, that's all the cocaine. And then Dean Norris is like, oh, well, what's in the fourth one? It's like, yeah, it's a buddy. It's like, what? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a passenger, it's a passenger as they say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the 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 Colombian just send it to them because like, hey, three barrels, four barrels. What's the difference? We'll send him a dead body. He hates this shit. And yeah, he'll send like it back. It's like it's like, <laughs> it's like an inside it's an inside joke with your cartel buddies. Yes. You yeah. send them a dead body as a joke. And then you, <laughs> and then you send it back and then. What do they say? Like, oh, it just keeps going. Yeah, like, oh, it's just there forever. He's like, what's going to happen to it? He's like, oh, you know. It'll go back on the truck. It'll go, it'll go to auction. <laughs> Someone will buy it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, that, that was really funny. That was good. Yeah, that scene was great. Uh, John Leguizamo was uncredited as well. He, he did not mm. appear in the end credits of the film. Uh, and, and then Dean Norris playing a, uh, a drug buyer as opposed to a uh, DEA agent, which he played in Breaking Bad. Yeah, in this right around this time was like kind of more towards when Breaking Bad was on the air. So, um, yeah, I think this is the last year. I think 2013 is when Breaking Bad ended. Right, right. So it was the height and then end of Dean Norris's career. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) There is one other actor who played the Malkina's banker and he's, his name, first name is Gorin and I can't remember the spelling of the last name, but I want to say he was like in ER at one point and he's been in a a couple of other things, but yeah, he's in that kind of last scene with Malkina having dinner and and so forth, which was just kind of like a bit bit role, but I don't know. He's, he's a decent actor. Yeah. Okay. It's like Goran Vizinyuk, some, some Croatian name. Ah, yeah. I can see him being Croatian. That makes sense. But I, I guess we'll jump forward to cinematography. I think we covered pretty thoroughly the, the actors and, and so forth. And uh, Lewis, do you want to take away this, this bit on cinematography since you yeah, for our, sure. our DP uh, and everything? <laughs> yeah, so the uh, the DP, director of photography, um, that's what that means. Don't think anything else, <laughs> folks. Um Darius Wolski, I guess. Let's go with that. Um, he was a cinematographer for the film The Crow, mm-hmm. um, which is the film that uh, Brendan Lee died mm-hmm. on, uh, for all of you who don't know. Uh, and then he was the cinematographer for the majority of the Pirates movies, mm-hmm. except, uh, oddly enough, the one that Bardem is in, uh, <laughs> Dead Men Tell No Tales yeah, from a few years ago. Yeah. And he did like four Scott films, four Ridley Scott films around the same time. So like The Martian, Prometheus, this, and then another one I can't remember. Um, and he also is the cinematographer on a film that we did, uh, The Mexican, oh, starring, again, Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. uh, in Mexico, I guess. kind of In Mexico. where So that one, he relies heavily on like the yellow filter for Mexico right. scenes. Right. And in this one, he doesn't. And I kind of like that. Yeah. You know, um, that's something you'll see uh, a lot of discourse online about um, foreign uh, landscapes uh, and cityscapes in American films generally have like some, you know, very disgusting seedy yellow filter yeah. over them. There's a big discourse about that, um, about Palestine right now I was, on Twitter. I was just going to mention there, there was like a viral yeah. tweet the other day. It's like Palestine and American films. And it's it's like literally like gold yellow tinge to everything right and then palestine yep. in real life and it's just like a verdant like a, this lush blue ocean it's like this is what it really looks yep. like exactly so i don't think they rely too heavily on that in this uh, definitely in those pickup shots of juarez in the beginning they do and vibe, a few yeah. shots in like the 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 like the cartel chop shop um but right. then not as much when we go back to uh juarez with with fastbender it's a lot darker and more cold than it's it's yeah. still it's still dangerous. It, it still comes off as a dangerous aesthetic, but it's not it's not like the like like filtered through tequila yellow kind of like <laughs> that we right. used to. Man on Fire, I think is that the one with Denzel? The, yes, is and, it Man uh, on Fire? Yeah, yes, he, he's yep. uh, and Mickey Rourke actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the most egregious exi- Like that's the image mm-hmm. that I get in yes. my head mm-hmm. to describe that phenomenon. <laughs> the yellow. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, and just like Tony Scott in general, like that's kind of half of his films have either that <laughs> filter or like the green filter that you see in a lot of horror films. Right. Uh, but I also think like Tony Scott does that well because he, I don't know who his cinematographer is and he, I'm sure he's worked a bunch, but like he always has more interesting camera movements than I think Ridley Scott does. Mm. Um, whereas Ridley Scott's more likely to just like put the camera down and let it roll, which I, I'm fine with. And I like yeah, that. That's your thing. But yeah. I think like, that's my thing. Uh, definitely. It's what I do in my own films. <laughs> but, um, with, with someone like Tony Scott, like he definitely, he like kind of reinvents how cameras are moved around. Right. Um, but that's neither here nor there. That's not this film. <laughs> Overall, I think cinematography wise, like I said, I did enjoy the opening kind of panoramic views of Juarez. Mm. The as we mentioned, the the jail scene with Fassbender and Rosie Rosie Perez was was fantastic. A really good. I like the angles in the that were used camera wise, and the contrast of the very like minimalist palette. As opposed, like it was a good contrast mm. as opposed to all kind of the other bright scenes and, and so forth. But those are like the only two scenes that really stand out. Overall, this is not a movie that I was like that. I don't know. Maybe the cinematography simply didn't call itself. It was like so kind of subdued or I don't know. But I, yeah. I tend to like a lot. I don't know. Something more with a little bit more pizzazz or like. Mm-hmm. Um. The only the only thing I can even think of that really stood out to me, visually wise, was um, there there was they they picked a lot of good days to shoot on because a lot of the outdoor um, scenes, especially like like once kind of the 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 cartel business starts starts really rolling, um, there's a lot of storm clouds, um, like like a storm is literally right. gathering on the, on the mm-hmm. horizon. Um, the most prominent example I can think of is when Bardem's Reiner character is killed. Um, yep. completely overcast as far as the eye can see. They're in the middle of this like huge field. There's no blue in the sky. It's all gray, but it's still bright out. Um, so you, you get the advantage of it's kind of like a harsh brightness to the whole movie, but it's still overcast. So like you, you and, and there are days that are like that and they're very striking. Like when you actually see that oh, outside. Yeah. Definitely in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Like in, in this, in this part of the world. Um, so it got that very well. And then once... Fassbender's counselor once he kind of has enough and he reaches out to um Hefe in desperation the storm clouds do burst because it's raining when he goes to visit Hefe like the, the storm actually has arrived right um, mm-hmm. and and I guess in terms of like cinematography picking those good overcast days to shoot and then and then um I guess that devils a little bit into the writing and then ha- like having having the storm burst when Fassbender's at his breaking point that that was just a very nice bit of uh, visual symbolism yeah. No, I think the cinematography um, is uh, a tad subdued in their choices, but I, I think it works for this specific film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not necessarily something you see in a lot of uh, neo-noirs or obviously film noirs, not so much, especially film noirs being shot in black and white. You get more contrasts here, um, you know, with, with shadows and, 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 and night shooting and day shooting. Um, but the, the, the neo-noir... Uh, 
tradition, either you get films like uh, Eight Million Ways to Die, where there's a lot of neon, or or Michael Mann's Thief, where there's a lot of neon and, and a lot of night photography. Um, you know, something where it's like it, it very much is in your face. Or you get you know a film like this, um, a more a, a much more subdued kind of um, f- film neo noir, um, or even something like uh, Robert. Uh, Altman's uh, The Long Goodbye, which um, I think has some more subdued choices and how it's shot. Um, so yeah, nothing necessarily wrong with that. But um, if this is yeah, if this, if you're coming at this film and you, you really want something that punches you in the gut, you know, visually, it's probably not this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, a, yeah, I'm an idiot. Overall, I'm an idiot. I had two other things I wanted to mention, cinematography wise. <laughs> Uh, one thing that did punch me in the gut, it was this really quick scene uh, near the end when uh, Fassbender's making his way through a protest in Juarez, like, or this like memorial service, because Cooper was telling me like at, at this time, um, there was like a spike in, in female murders or, or murders of like women and young girls in Juarez. And like there were, there were many demonstrations about it. And um, Fassbender's kind of just making his way through the crowd it's like very thematic and everything and then there's this half second shot from an alleyway looking at the crowd um in like the the walls of the alleyway frame what we can see of the crowd very well and there's this huge armored military police vehicle with its yes. gigantic gun pointed right at the crowd yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's like the, this is very this very nicely sums up everything um relating to like the the loss of of women in in regards to the drug trade um so that that like literal half second scene really affected me and um another quick thing brad pitt's character the the west ray guy um he's often like shot against very like smooth and sleek surfaces like his wardrobe matches what he's shot against he's often he's often seen um standing in front of like very polished glass and like reflective metal surfaces and um that kind of gave me like the like this idea for like neo noirs like taking place in like sterile corporate environments and um his whole character and presentation really tied into that well i thought yeah no i agree um i i love the scene in the hotel lobby between yes. him and Fassbender, exactly. where there's like all these tourists running around and just like old people like sitting down eat, drinking coffee um and like you said kind of like this uh this commercialized like hellscape around them uh that you know Pitt's characters are often framed against um and then just like the the waitress who comes in and out and asks them for like their their beverage order um i thought that was a a really interesting uh location Mm -hmm. that again the the cinematography is very subtle but it works really well in that scene exactly i think usually i'm more attracted to I think dynamic lighting and, and more camera movement for sure. Maybe like that, yeah. su- like kind of the Sopranos vibe as far as like lighting goes. I like that kind of kind of high contrast yeah. stuff. And we, we do get a little bit of that with, with um, I think Rainer, the way he's kind of framed often, um, like even beyond his, like his gaudy shirts and everything. Um, just the, the, the house that he's in and there's like the, the pool that he sits in front of, but he never really goes into and get some, get some good colors there. Versace, mm. Versace, Versace, Versace. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he has this amazing shirt at the beginning. It's um, it's got like the Cooper was saying, like the Versace kind of gold trim on the sleeves, and then just on on the chest of the shirt, it's like it's all the these butterflies. Butterflies. Yes, <laughs> I called it his Nabokov shirt. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, that that's all I got for cinematography. Kind of, kind of, lots of little subtle things that I appreciated, but um, but yeah, not, nothing to really write yeah, home about. Not something that I'm gonna look at. I think the, I think the writing really ultimately in this film is sure. kind of the monologues are really the that's kind of like the red meat here, film wise. Um, but Def- yeah, definitely. I am feeling pretty confident we can move on to editing, which I don't have a whole lot to say. The editing was yeah. pretty standard, kind of like not really didn't call it much attention to itself. But yeah, I'll let uh, I'll let one of you guys. I think the most prominent example is the the wire execution scene. Hell yeah. Um, it's great. I, I love how inventive and slightly comic booky, but still very plausible way that it was done. So basically, um, the cartel is trying to kill the son of Rosie Perez's cartel boss character. Or no, no, no. Well, not, I think that's conf- that stuff, that whole relationship, maybe we'll have to talk about either in writing or sure. like miscellaneous is trying to like unravel exactly the plot because it's not super clear in my yeah. head. Malki- Mal- no, Malkina was trying to kill that yes, kid. right. And, and Malkina hired the wire guy to right. kill that kid. Um, so the wire guy, he he finds out the make and model of the the motorcycle that this kid always rides around. Rosie it, Perez's son. Yeah, Rosie Perez's son. And, and, yeah. and the, green the Green Hornet, Hornet as they yeah. call and, him. And it was foreshadowed <laughs> so well, too, because we see him and hear him driving around in the first act of the movie. Yeah. He's like this kind of... In the first scene, in the first yeah. shot, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, that's him. He, he's kind of like this almost like this Greek chorus presence. Like he's always in the background, just like flitting about while the action goes on in the foreground. Um, but yeah, the, this assassin, he goes to like this high end boat, like bike dealership. He takes a measurement of the bike. Yeah. And, and, and the salesman's like, Oh, I'm going to make a sale. Can I help you, sir? He's like, Nope. And then he walks out. He just walks it's out. so good. He goes to a specific, um, like middle of nowhere area in the road. He has this really tight wire, um, and that uh, foreshadows the Bolito very well too. Oh yeah, good call. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a very yeah. And he 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 strings this wire um, against a like a telephone pole in his truck at the exact height that he measured, and, it, and then he just waits in the editing. Like he he does all these things methodically. He takes the measurements. He tightens the wire carefully. He turns his light so he can blind the kid, and then suddenly it, like snapshot to it, it's dark outside. And then the kid, he just, he's going 200 miles an hour and he, his head gets sliced off. And it, it was just very, like, well edited. I love the kind of, um, I mean, you pick up on it fairly quickly. It's not immediately clear what's going on yes. on, like, your first viewing. Yes. Immediately. But then you right. kind of, like, quickly you do catch on. Yeah. I, I did, I, like, kind of that vibe to it. I it's think, like, what um, the fuck is this? Like. I, I, yeah, why is he doing he's this? measuring a bike like, yeah <laughs> and i think you were next like we were watching it together the other night and um it was like maybe a third into the way of his preparations and i was like oh shit it's <laughs> like, like i know <laughs> just yeah no it, like that that kind of like they draw it out but not too long it was very very well timed yeah um and just like that actor is perfect for that role as well as kind of just like I, I mean i don't know what you would call that guy like is he a hitman i guess he's right a henchman. like he's a fucking yeah, he, yeah, yeah right, exactly he's just like a, a henchman him and, and then there's the other woman who like can read lips who we only see in literally one scene right right um, right 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 and it's it's like it's little characters like that that i love in yes. films yes. um and i think ridley scott does that well and i think his brother may he rest in peace tony scott does it even better mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's why I think this film is really a Tony Scott film more than a Ridley Scott <laughs> mm-hmm. film. Um, it's funny, actually, not funny. It's it's definitely not funny after what I'm, you're going to hear me say in two seconds. Yep. Uh, Tony Scott actually, um, trigger warning, uh, committed suicide while this was being yep. filmed. And that's why we see the in memoriam for Tony Scott at the end yep. of this. It, we, um, I, I have a few thoughts on that. We can get to that at the end, kind of like a metatextual wrap up. But I, I think it plays yeah. like very much into the themes of the movie. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, um, I feel like we should also but yeah, we just, should let Lewis uh, tell us who the editor was. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Peach. Yeah, geez. <laughs> We're checking off uh, another bingo point here, right? <laughs> uh, uh, Pietro uh, Scalia. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the most Italian name ever. Um, Perhaps related to uh, Antonin uh, Scalia. Who Fingers knows? Crossed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll Hopefully, that. though, this Scalia does not uh, meet an untimely end because this Scalia is uh, actually a talented and and good person. Uh, well, I just assumed the last right. part, but he's definitely objectively talented. a better person. <laughs> Hard to be worse, yeah. for sure. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's worked with. Uh, uh, Ridley Scott, uh, a ton, uh, Gladiator, The Martian, American Gangster, and that's just three of them yeah, that three I listed of the here. Movies, there's, more recent, yeah. Movies. There's a, there's a bunch more, um, but yeah, he's he's a he's a good director. I mean, I think it's just overall like really economically edited. I don't think there's any wasted shots. Um, I do think the movie's a little too long, but that might be more of a writing thing we can talk about more than an editing thing. I don't think it's his fault that it's too long. I have another comment that will, that kind of bridges the gap between editing and writing. I, I think we can use the segue into the writing. Um, but I liked how we followed um, the 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 path, the trajectory of the truck, the way it was interspersed throughout the other actions of the movie. Yes, um, mm-hmm. Lewis, it really reminded me of um, Repo Man, the way the car comes into L.A. Oh, right, um, right. It's just like this mm-hmm. deadly cargo carried by this mysterious vehicle. Uh, it kind of it kind of trades drivers as like it, as its path progresses, um, and and like each 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 scene of the of the truck driving like it gets more and more dangerous and like it just it just penetrates deeper and deeper into like enemy that is American territory for the cartel. Um, yeah, it was, it was just like very well timed and spaced out among the other scenes. It's kind of a good B kind of B plot sort of a little bit. Yeah. Like I don't know if that's maybe one A would be. Because it's like it's definitely part of the main plot, but it's not yet at the same time. It's 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 like part of the main plot, but it's not like like what the movie is quote unquote about. Because right. it's about the struggle right. of guilt and, and and like damnation and everything. But yeah, like it, it's it's a very good and very like tight little side story. Mm, yeah, I mean it, it's the MacGuffin, right? Yeah, uh, you yeah know? good call. Um, yes. So it's it's definitely integral, um, but it makes more sense to do this kind of cross cutting and have that you know be interspersed throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know it, you probably wouldn't want to just focus on that the whole time. Although it would be interesting to have a film that focuses on like the low level gangsters who are just driving that, right? And, um, and the high or you know the high level shit is the is the side plot, <laughs> right? You know, like swish it. Um, but uh, for the purposes of, of, of this kind of film, obviously, like, no, you, you focus on, you know, the high level lawyers and the and and the, and the wheeler dealers, of course. And I guess we're fully in the writing territory now. But um, I also like how the the path of the truck uh, that was ultimately like a comedy as opposed to the tragedy of the main plot. 
like it, it ends in a little joke like it it ends it, it's a happy ending for the people involved because they get their money they get their drugs uh, but it ends with the dead body joke um right which yeah. is a morbid <laughs> counterpoint to the dead body reveal of the main story but uh yeah we should point out obviously that this is cormac mccarthy's first and only screenplay at least that's to date. been produced <laughs> yeah which I think was the draw initially for me to, because I, I actually, believe it or not, saw this film when it came out in the theaters because it was kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the time it was like nothing else was out right. of interest. I'm like, oh shit, you know, right. this cast sounds great. Um, Cormac McCarthy, like, holy shit. Yeah. Gotta go. This sounds <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. Um, I had to look this up because so he has written one other movie, but it's a TV movie. He wrote the adaptation of his play, The Sunset Limited. Oh yeah, for okay. HBO. Okay. Okay. Yeah, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel Jackson. I think like they're the only yeah. two actors. In There's the only whole two movie. characters in the whole yeah, thing. It's kind yeah. of like a stage yeah. type. Yeah, it, it kind of fits. Yeah, that's um, and that that's a good pairing too for that guy for McCarthy oh, thing. It's yeah. like there's like the, it's right. like a dude's rock trifecta McCarthy, Samuel Jackson, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones, but um yeah, I didn't know about that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's 2011, so 2 years before this. Um but yeah, it's I mean, we we've been beating this to death, but like there there are the obvious comparisons to No Country, um but not in not in a way that's annoying or or too plotting or too like derivative um it, it it definitely does feel like the 2010s version of a story that's set in the 70s it, it's it's like the the more modern contemporary iteration of that um and and this is a seemingly really incidental superficial thing but they use they incorporate cell phones well into the story um and that that's incorporating modern technology into especially like a, a taut crime thriller is always tricky I think to do but McCarthy just does it it it, it feels very natural and real and I think Lewis had probably the more structural critiques of of the writing itself I'm more like fanning fanboying over like a lot of these monologues and imagery mm-hmm. that McCarthy's inputting but I'll uh, I'll throw it to Lewis in terms of <laughs> opinions and on the structure and so forth <laughs> Yeah, so I think um, it's it's very literary. Um, it would probably work better as a book or, like we said, a play. Um, you know, I'm not against monologues in film. Obviously, you know, they've been doing that forever. Um, a lot of a lot of actors, um, you know, th- since the beginning of, of, of filmmaking, started out um, on on the uh, on the stage and then transitioned and and, and to th- to this day, and that's what a lot of actors do. So you know, it makes sense. Um, there's definitely a, a, a continuity between the two mediums, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just it it um, there's some longer monologues and some some scenes with certain details that I, I feel would be better in book format. Um, I think a lot of the third act of this film, as satisfying as the Bolito is, um, I almost didn't need to see it. It's, it's cool. And I'm glad we did see it. Um, and also a lot of, um, fast benders, um, foray into Mexico looking sad. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't sure if that, a lot of that was necessary either. Yeah. I, that's, that's pretty fair. Um, 
I don't know, Nick, do you, do you want to step in or before I start fanboying over like 8 yeah. million <laughs> bits of dialogue that I love? Um, with the Bolito thing, I, I know why Lewis says we don't, we wouldn't need to see it, but, um, I think we deserve it if we're not going to see, the, <laughs> if, if we're not going to see the snuff film, at least. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And, and, um, and that in and of itself was like so well set up, um, that, that set up in the payoff of, oh, there's going to be a snuff film at some point and oh yeah, it's going to be of, of radiant Penelope Cruz, but you're not going to get to see it like that, that kind of thematically works with everything like tragedy and horrible like like sadness and grief occurs but, but you don't really you're not really aware of it and even if you are you you wouldn't want to see it for yourself like that that just worked up that, that was such a good payoff um and one and there there was a strong i guess like undercurrent of um cocaine and and snuff films and actually diamonds too as being these symbols of the very act of consuming them makes you makes you complicit in their production, um, and those three things like the the drug trade, um, sexual exploitation and violence, and and, and diamonds like the, the blood diamond um, industry. Um, I, I guess that's as fitting like a thesis statement for the writing as as there could be. The very act of viewing something makes you complicit in in participation, um, and I have thoughts on like how. Once we get into themes, that can we can tease that out more. But um, all, all of which is to say, like there there are these like nice little symbols and illusions set up throughout the script that pay off nicely. I think I, I think that was well done. Like Chekhov's Bolito, Chekhov's, like, yes. Chekhov's Bolito yes. and Chekhov's snuff, Chekhov's snuff DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think like this film is incredibly well plotted. Yeah. Um, in terms of the writing, I don't think it's incredibly well paced and I blame Ridley Scott for that. Um, you know, and I blame McCarthy only because like being his first screenplay, he might not know how well something he writes can actually be adapted onto screen or, you know, what that pacing looks like. I mean, he's had plenty of his films adapted, but I don't think he's been, um, very involved in those productions. Um, I think no quench for old men, that his first, you know, the, uh, all the so. pretty horses I think had been made into a movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Billy Bob yep. Thornton made that. That's yep. right. And it was cut to pieces and we'll never see the the right version of that film. We'll always see the bullshit version that exists of it. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so like I think he understands like what's a good movie, but I'm not sure he understands how to write a, a, a well-paced movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean like writing, writing novels and writing screenplays, they're, they're, they're different skills. They're, right. they're, they're distinct. They're, there's a lot of overlap for sure, but they're, they're definitely distinct. Yeah. I'd like to see him keep going uh, if movies are ever made again. <laughs> uh, you know. Which Marvel character should McCarthy write for? <laughs> Actually, I would love to see a McCarthy Punisher movie. Ooh, Ooh, that'd be nice. good. That'd be pretty good. All right, all right. Or, or a modern adaptation of, isn't there like a Old West gunslinger? I was going to say Jonah in, Hex. Well, that's I know, DC. but I was... I wasn't making the jump. I'll take it. I oh. know John X fucking yeah. DC Lewis. <laughs> God, you can. You get some proletarian contrarian banter here, yeah. folks. Uh. I will say before I start fanboying over like eight million of the lines of dialogue. For me, right. the Bolito thing was yeah. It was like, I mean, you kind of saw it, you saw it coming. Like they, they could have been I think more economical with. Maybe that's more of the editing. 
like, like because it was like so, it was scene. so like drawing out the tension, yeah. and you kind of like knew, right? You kind of like knew at that point what was going to happen yeah. there. Um, so that one, it was a nice payoff, but to me, the most powerful bit of writing was setting up the snuff film, and I think yeah. that had the yeah. like absolute just gut punch. And I mean, more um, this is more visual, but like when. Fassbender looks at it the mirrored surface shows his face looking reflected on the actual dvd and like this is this you you did this like this is this is you and your face is imprinted on it literally and so it's set up kind of it's right. set up kind of like early on in the film and is was it reiner or was it westray it was reiner uh it was westray uh, uh, no right? it was westray yeah yeah it was westray because he's talking yeah. about like what, right 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 how much money would someone pay for or do you realize how much that costs to happen right right yeah, because he he was the one that was talking about um, the cartels in, in in taking part in something makes you complicit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. Or, or just viewing something makes you complicit. So I thought that that was the most powerful, like emotional moment. And what's really brilliant about it too, in terms of the screenplay, is that there's no there's no dialogue, right? Nope. In terms of that scene. Yeah. But it's all like everything is communicated, and the little like hello yep. that's sharpied onto the actual DVD that Fassbender gets, and also like even the little minute detail of like him having to flip it over because it flip was it, it was yeah. face down, yep. and then it's like this hello surprise, and like he immediately knows what happened. We immediately yep. know what happened. They probably like I think Lewis, you pointed this out, could have cut out the whole like. Penelope Cruz body. I wish they theme. hadn't shown that. Yeah. That would have yeah, I wish they been didn't more show that. like ominous, but I um feel like they were maybe afraid that audiences wouldn't, wouldn't. kind of like snap to yeah. that, which give, yeah. oh, 100%, give your, that's just give your audience is fucking dumb. like some credit. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I could see like very easily that's like it's kind of one of those knife's edge moments where you're like, eh, should we should, it feels like maybe we need to allude to this a little bit, but to me, that's kind of like, in terms of emotion, that's like the linchpin mm-hmm. of the entire film. And there's a lot of little foreshadowing moments in the beginning. Um, like when Malkina and, what was Penelope Cruz's character's name? Laura? Shit, I don't even remember. Yeah, I think it <laughs> when is. When Malkina and Laura, they're they're at the pool together, and she Laura's telling her about the, the ring, and like, oh, we're getting married and everything. And like, Malkina gets like this predatory glint in her eyes, and she's like, let me see the ring. No, take it off. Like, let me see it. Like, her, her greed is so apparent she's there. She's very aggressive about it. Yeah, she she is a predator. She is as much a predator as the cheetahs are. Um, and of course, we get that visual of the, the cheetahs hunting down the rabbit earlier, which is Malkina and Laura to some degree. Um... Yeah, just like like little little symbolic things that um make sense when you think about them for for half a second, like forty five minutes after the fact. Any other thoughts, Lewis? Before I like I said, I've got a, a hundred bits of dialogue <laughs> that I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, no, I'll let you get to those. Uh, that's really all I had to say about it. I mean, overall, I I do like the way this film is structured outside of some of the more, you know, monologue bits. Um, and then of course, yeah, like I said, I think the third act would have been better as just like illusions more right. than, uh, showing. So maybe, yeah, t- actually it would have been better as telling as opposed <laughs> to showing. <laughs> I think one of those moments that you called out is like the Bruno Gans scene with the diamonds with Fassbender, where he's picking out a diamond for the engagement ring. 
and uh, the Gans kind of dis- dialogue is something like, you know, you know, we're not we. He kind of goes off into this whole thing about we won't be made less by the sort of brevity of our lives, which I think is a really powerful kind of statement but yeah it does feel a little bit odd for like why why the fuck is it's not natural in terms of like why is a jeweler kind of getting into into this thing (laughs) although i i could wasn't he talking about that in relation to a diamond like he's like the the perfection in the like the longevity of a diamond is is a counterpoint to our own brevity so like i I could maybe see like like this high-end like bougie jeweler get waxing philosophical to like make a sale to like some to some right. american tourist mm-hmm. um yeah but yeah i don't know and they're in amsterdam so he could be dutch and the dutch are weird yes. i mean i spent time in amsterdam i could see one of them saying that yeah cause, yeah because I, th- I think that whole like illusion was to like diamonds are forever but we we are not kind of thing right i did like it i did like that kind of uh defiant i mean this is very mccarthy mm. type I feel like McCarthy himself is very much like this old Old Testament prophet kind of a. I always get this vision yeah. of him as that, or yeah. like yeah, like a Zarathustra character from like sure. from Nietzsche. Uh, you know, the spake Zarathustra. Like he has that kind of like Old Testament, like old man prophet kind of like yelling out at the right, <laughs> kind of like screaming at the Israelites <laughs> to, and, and to it, get their shit together. And it could not be more different than like. To, to be uncharitable to like other other writers like like wallowing self-pity like like it, it's very um i don't want to say confident but it's like very self-assured i think his um his his whole temperament it's an interesting contrast too because you have that and i think this like this too this contrast here is so dynamic as you have like the bruno gans kind of monologue about the diamond and, and so forth and then we have westray that's like I've seen it all, counselor, and it's all shit. Yes. It's all shit, which yeah. is like also pure McCarthy. Like yep. those two sides of the coin. Yeah, that kind of like relentless nihilistic vision of like yeah. the gods are capricious assholes is sort of the vibe that I maybe that's the kind of thematic element that I kind of get out of the film itself is that like there's the gods are capricious. There, it's like a Greek tragedy sort of element to the whole to the whole thing and we're sort of like just little bits or we're like pieces on the chessboard to be moved around by these more powerful cruel like unthinking forces it's interesting you say that because i i I thought one of the similarities yet yet differences like like one of the counterpoints to the no country connection is that um no country like it's all it is all about that like the capricious capricious nature of fate like oh Llewellyn stumbles upon this money right and it happens to him yeah whereas in this um oh yeah he acted the counselor this. he he came here because True. of his own actions it's very well established that True. he yes there there is an element of chaos but like it's not all chaos like we, we do have some agency and some people do to misuse that agency and it, it hurts everyone around them um but like Penelope, Penelope yeah, but Cruz, I, for example, is her character is totally right. like she's completely innocent, right. and yet she gets the worst right. of of anyone, mm-hmm. with the exception of maybe. Well, I don't even think Westray. Yeah, he, he gets a, the kind of hell that she experienced. He was living large up yeah. until that moment. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he was going out with. Uh, yeah, Natalie I think he got to hook up with Natalie uh, Dormer the night before. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, yeah, but I even think like 
to your point, Nick, that yeah, he definitely does have more agency than someone like Llewellyn Moss, uh, uh, the the character of Josh Brolin's character in No Country for Old Men. But I think what uh, McCarthy points out is that yeah, you might think you have it, sure. right? But you actually don't. Like, there's these right. other forces that are outside of your control that will either lead to the death of everybody you love or or you. <laughs> and, um, and that is true because like Fassbender tries to help out ruthie and her son because he bills her son out yeah and he he, he does right. bill his her son out which he thought was like okay i'll get a favor from a powerful cartel boss this is great but then when the son gets killed apart from that his generosity directly Im- against implicates him, yeah. him in 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 the right. cartel yeah so yeah, yeah even trying to account for this and even trying to get ahead of the game it'll just bite you in the ass in the end what do we think? Okay, so in the first scene, the encounter with Westray and uh, the Fassbender character, the counselor, whenever the counselor is leaving, Westray says, you know, he's kind of referencing, who do you think they want dead? You, counselor. What do we, what do we think that means as far as writing or theme-wise? I was kind of curious. to. Yeah, you had asked me this the other night, too. Um I think that like Westray was playing out the the probable or or certain like outcome of what would happen if this goes if this goes belly up. Um, I I don't think he was saying like they want you dead at this moment. I like right. But I guess in a more metaphysical sense, they do want him dead at that moment. He just doesn't realize like nobody realizes it yet. Because he goes on to he's like they they think that you're stupid. Which could be right. like your tr- ace card is that you're dumb. No, that's Rainer who says okay, that to him because Rainer's like, oh, they they think you're stupid, and maybe if you just go confess to them, and tell them the truth, they'll believe you because you're so gullible. Yeah. But then he he segued that into pretending that um, that the counselor w- was confessing to the authorities because he's because like, implying that that's your only hope to just yeah, fess up you. and yeah. Huh. Oh yeah, when he says like go to the you're you're in court and he's like why am I in court? Like, yeah, like, this yeah, is the right. only shadow of potential salvation that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good read of of that line. Um, just again, kind of the the inevitability of the the counselor's death. Um, although we don't actually see that on screen. Yeah, I, I like that he doesn't die. I like that he, or, or yeah. at least we don't see it. Like he'll die eventually, but um. Yeah, the showing him, him, him getting the snuff film of his fiance is is better than having him just be shot yeah. by some oh, hired absolutely. gun. Oh yeah. yeah, definitely. Right, and that's even what like that that barkeep says uh, in the scene right before he gets the snuff film. Right, right? he says like, uh, "I'm dead because like my whole family's dead," yeah. or something yep. to that effect. Yep. Um, the other. I think the big dialogue bits that we haven't really touched on yet or the writing bits are the his meeting his phone call with Hefe, the the veteran cartel guy that he, he happened to know right. somehow um there because Hefe, he he he's the one that tells that tells the counselor like listen your your fiance is dead at this point already just like your, your grief has shattered you. you you have to like make peace with that and he goes into this um very long it's not quite a soliloquy it, like it, it there is some back and forth with fassbender but he he elaborates on like the nature of um 
how cho- making choices creates new worlds and kills old ones. And um, like I kind of like touched on like almost like multiverse theory, like every every decision we make creates like a branching <laughs> parallel timeline. Um, to put it more like prosaically than than Hefe did. But and he also mentioned he also ties in that uh, real world poet um, Machado. Um, I forget the guy's first name, but like he he reads a. I think it's Manuel Machado. He reads a um, or he he recites a line of poetry which, in English, is translated to, "There is no road; the road is made as you go along." Um, which which is, like the the that that's the thesis statement for the movie. Like there is, there there are no choices. Just the the only the only choices you make like have already. The the only decisions you make are are the trail of what you leave behind you. Like you're not actually making. You're not actually acting out on this illusion of agency that you think you have. You can just see it in your wake. That definitely was my favorite part of the film, was that discussion mm, yep. <laughs> in particular. Yep. Yeah. Which I actually I videoed with my phone. There was at one time you could find it on YouTube, some of that monologue. Right. But it's subsequently been taken down, so I'm going to try to maybe upload that again yeah. and see if I can get away with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just mirror it or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was like maybe one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. And then I love the like twist at the end. Like he's giving this very, you know, just eloquent dialogue about (laughs) other worlds and like this very existential conversation to the counselor. And then he's like, you know, I, I think I might take a nap or maybe, or maybe I'll take a little nap. Yeah. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Well, he's he's in a different world <laughs> yeah. than Investmenter is. But he's right. got like uh, he's got like this kind of power of God yeah. to like he has the power of salvation for the counselor, and yet he's like you know he doesn't. Yeah. I may t- I may take a nap. I'm very I'm very happy, counselor, that you would trade your you know placed yourself on the wheel for your wife, but it's impossible, right? Uh, yeah, God, that, that's so agonized. Like you would do it, and it's good that you would do it, but. It can't it's be. It can't bad. be done. You've yeah, already. Which, yeah. Oh god. Mm-hmm. The yeah, die has. That was definitely one of my favorite lines of the. The die the has film. been cast, yep. so to speak. But you kind of that was like the centerpiece, I think, dialogue wise. That's the climax of the movie, as yeah, far as I'm concerned. For sure. No, I mm-hmm. totally agree. Um, some other moments that I really liked were, again, just the dialogue, the back and forth with Fassbender and Rosie Perez in the jail yep. scene, particularly like the blowjob joke where. Oh, yeah. The kind of premise yeah. was she was yeah. like, okay, so the the Green Hornet's son who gets decapitated that we've discussed, his he gets arrested for speeding initially for going two hundred and six pounds, and he's like, oh, that that's somebody's weight. That's not that's not a speed. Right? And that actually is very economical <laughs> in terms of writing because that sets up. Yes, it's plausible that he would slice his own head off with a wire because you're thinking right. when you see it happen. Yeah. yeah, he's going two hundred and six miles an hour. Of course, he would cut his head off. And so, like, what's the joke is, okay, so she says his bail is, like, $400, and she's like, oh, would you do this for free or whatever? And he's like, eh, what if I gave you a blowjob? And he's like, well, then you'd still owe me $380. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, like, the that was good because, like, she appreciated that, like, kind of, like, crude joke, and it endeared himself more, endeared him more to her, too. So it worked on character level as well. Mm -hmm. Another little bit. Is I think this is in the context of Reiner talking about being in love with Malkina 
and he yep. says something like, "It's like being in love with easeful death." Yeah. They yeah, just yeah. love that little. I don't know. That was pretty impactful. Um, Reiner and Malkina have had kind of like a uh, in. Irony Edgelord poster and E Girl relationship. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they had like the, they, they had like the Joker Harley aesthetic when they were in the car fucking scene. Oh yeah, that's true. It's a contra. We haven't oh, talked geez, about that. Yeah, yeah okay. As well. We should probably talk about that. <laughs> we can. Well, we'll like Coop finish his fanboy and then we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, so one moment that very hard contrast to that is this bit of dialogue. From actually, the, I think the opening scene with with Penelope Cruz and Fassbender, where they're in bed, and he says that life is being in bed with you, and everything else is just waiting. And I just think, like, I don't know. This is kind of sad indictment of my own life, but I don't know. Like, I haven't felt that. Like, I I yeah. absolutely have felt that experience with like a significant other, but it's been a long, long time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're waiting that. right now. Yeah. Right. So that. <laughs> I am, I am too, folks. That really, that really hit me quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm not. Louis is not happily, happily married. <laughs> um, but yeah, and just on a symbolic level to that, to that scene, um, we hear the the bike in the in the distance because like we get those long shots of, of the Green Hornet, and um, they they look like they're wrapped in a burial shroud because they're they're wrapped up in a in a white right. blanket, a white sheet like that entire time. Um, which I thought was like a little kind of like fake movie sex yeah. aesthetic at first, but I think on a symbolic level, they're they're both wrapped up in their barrel shots already. Yeah, I think it works, and I think also just like the cinematography of that scene again is is fairly yeah. subtle, but it's it's still a pretty interesting, like you know, filmed under the covers, yeah. having this dialogue and then a, a, a sexual scene. Um, there was one line dialogue that I was like, oof, this is just, <laughs> come on, guys. Where he's like, he says something like, oh, you're a sexy lady or something yeah, like that. Yeah, his, his, like, his <laughs> phone sex skills were terrible. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's right. There's the phone sex scene later. I forgot he, about that He says one. the word panties and like, yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. Like, no, it was something else. It was like, Nicker. no, no, that was Reinhardt. There was, the, there was saying. Reinhardt said knickers. Knickers, yeah. Oh, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, There's he no, said that. Yeah. So fucking gross. Um. Oh yeah, and I wrote it down here. Uh, so in the in the beginning scene when they're under the covers, uh, he says, Fassbender says to Penelope Cruz, he says, "God, you're a sexy woman." And then after that, he says, "Tell me something sexy." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like w- with a different actor, like a, a still attractive, like fit actor guy, like saying those things self self consciously, I think that could have worked better. Um, right. If, if there was more of an element of self conscious, but Fassbender's too like. Not happy go lucky, but just kind of like, yeah, of course, like of course, that's a sexy thing to say. Like, why, why, why wouldn't a woman right, like to yeah. hear that? Just of course it exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. Imagine, and this is somewhat off topic, but imagine being Javier Bardem, knowing that you have to do scenes with Michael Spassbender, who did a sex scene with your yeah, wife. That is because Bardem yeah. and Penelope you know Cruz what? are married. Bardem would uh, be secure <laughs> enough and in, in trusted enough. I, I think he'd be cool with it. Probably. I mean, most actors probably yeah. are, except, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sean Astin. <laughs> he was really weird. Really? About, uh, kissing the barmaid. Yeah. Mm, okay. uh, but or also, yeah, um, in, in Lord of the Rings. Um, who's, who's the evangelical guy that made the Saving Christmas? Kirk, Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. And there was a right. movie he was in called Fireproof, and he renews, his character renews his wedding vows with his character's wife at the end of the movie. 
Um, but the actress was, was just some other actress, but he refused to kiss the actress. So the shot of them kissing triumphantly at the end of the movie is shot from behind. So you can't tell it's Kirk Cameron yeah. kissing oh his God. wife with a wig on. His yes. actual wife he, with he a ins- wig on? He insisted Holy that shit. he only make out with his wife. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think like Javier Bardem, I mean, just like who he is, yeah, he wouldn't he, care, nor would Penelope yeah, Cruz. No. Like, you know, they, they, they're European. They got that whole thing going <laughs> they got, on. So. Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> they, they yeah. have the European mindset, if you will. Right. Um, Abundance <laughs> mindset. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we should talk about, I mean, unless there, is there any other oh, I've, I've got a lot. I've got a lot. Uh, oh yeah, keep going, keep I've going. I've got a lot. So this was a great moment whenever, okay, so shit has hit the fan and Westray is presumably, I can't remember if it was in person or on the phone, mm-hmm. but he says uh, in reference to like the, was it the cartel leaders is, they're a pragmatic lot. They don't believe in coincidences. They've heard of them. Yes. But they've never seen one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's, that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, another moment, this actually really funny is whenever Westray says, you ever see a snuff film? And it's funny because whenever Nick and I were watching the movie, I just burst out laughing. Like, I don't know, something about it was fucking hilarious. His, his, his delivery was good. His, he, he's probably my favorite yeah. actor in this movie. He just, he had, the, yeah, he had no, like for sure. this good attitude and the, he, he sold the lines well. Um, another, he's like, in reference to the snuff film, he's like, what do you think that costs? And then like, the counselor's like, Jesus God, which I thought was like, I don't know, because there's definitely, right, right we, ha- we haven't really touched on this much at all, but there is this, like, tremendous amount of religious imagery and dialogue. And, it, and But suitably, it's very subtle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we've got the yeah. confession scene, we've got their crosses, there's, like, an iron cross, even in the scene whenever the, uh, I believe it's when the, like, the kind of taut wire is being, that scene where the henchman is kind of putting that up is there's kind of, like, this metal cross. Right. And they, later on, we get the imagery with the the ladies that are in the streets of Juarez. Right. They're all carrying crosses. So I think that's a big thematic element that we can kind of allude to, but I just wanted to bring that up as something to consider sure. in terms of that 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 dialogue. Like, I think that's yeah. intentional as far as that goes. And obviously the whole thing with Penelope Cruz, she, she's very religious. She was like, yeah, we oh, want to yeah, get married right. in the church. It's important to me. And, um, right. and Melkina mm-hmm. finds that amusing and and when she goes to confess it's almost like oh yeah i'll test it i'll see what it's like right. I'll, I'll i'll dabble right you know and what's interesting is that conversation when they're at the pool and she's showing her the ring uh malkina also says something about different worlds yeah there. she says that penelope cruz lives in a yeah. different world um so that that dovetails nicely with um jefe when he talks about ah, other worlds very nice i like that a lot yeah Another one of my favorite lines coming from Westray is, if you think, Counselor, that you can live in this world and be no part of it, all I can say is that you're wrong. Which, uh, that actually ties into that uh, that whole world yep. thing, yeah. too, that theme. Exactly. Just, by, I, definitely the thesis of, of this film, I think. Just by virtue of existing, you're complicit in the whole world. Right. Kind of like there's yeah. no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? To make you're the, all, the connection, yeah. Sort of... Just by virtue yeah. of being alive, you, you're you're complicit in in the horrors of right. of capitalism. Um, 
Not you folks listening. <laughs> yeah, to this except podcast. except our wonderful, but, uh, except <laughs> our wonderful <laughs> labor giant. Labor giant's the only pure soul. We, God, yeah. God, God would have destroyed the world if not for Labor Giant being here. <laughs> Very nice. Another th- writing thing that I think is funny and goes to really, I think, the dynamic ability of of McCarthy is when it comes to these dark humor moments is whenever Wester is, he, there's at least repeated twice, maybe more, he's always telling the counselor, I can't advise you. To the counselor, yep. who the counselor right. is presumably yeah, like yeah. the one who should be <laughs> providing advice. It was like I'm, I'm not a count. I can't advise. But I can't he, really advise you, but I'm gonna yeah. kind of. He kind of still does. Yeah, yeah exactly. He does. That's <laughs> like the irony mm-hmm. of it. That, yeah. that was was pretty enjoyable. Yeah. Um, we also the barkeep, which whom we mentioned. Yep. With his great line, "All my family's dead," or I think b- before that though, they're kind of discussing. Is there a, a discussion about lo- about well, there, there being no meaning in death, and he's like, no, and then he kind of reverses and say, says that all my family's dead. There's no, I'm the one without the meaning. Fastbender, Fastbender's right. at the end of his rope. He he's ready to walk out into the streets of Juarez and at midnight, and the bartender's like, yeah, you're gonna die if you go out there, because like the people out there, if they hear someone, they shoot, and then they turn the lights on just to see who it is, but also to show that death is meaningless and like death has no meaning because like they. They, they want to light up the the corpse as a sick joke but but then he reverses it and he says no like i'm the one that has no meaning because meaning, uh, yeah, my yeah because my family's dead and i'm not and in a weird kind of inversion and maybe this is like a small the smallest glimmer of hope he treats he he's one of the more sympathetic characters he's yeah. treating festbender with some kindness even though he says he has no purpose anymore meaning that like if Fassbender is extraordinarily lucky in the future, that could become him. He he could somehow regain some kind of humanity, but that that's like extremely unlikely. <laughs> and then one one final bit of dialogue that I thought I don't know. This was very ominous, and I don't know. Felt very now in terms of where we are as a as a society. And it's Malkina saying, you know, our faintness of heart has driven us to the brink of ruin. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ellipses that because I don't think I left out a bit. But then she says, "The slaughter to come is beyond our imagining." Yeah. And just like in the context of something like climate change, yep, that's like the immediate image yeah. that I have is like, oh, like this shit is headed for a really, really bad ending. She also has another good line in in that same closing soliloquy that she has. Um, she says something like, uh, "There's nothing crueler than a coward," um, which I think. Is about oh, Fassbender. That's so true. Yeah, is about Fassbender, and like, yes, the world is horrifying and terrifying. But if you shrink from it, it, it will just that that's the only opening it needs to get inside you and destroy you. That's the tide. That's the tide right. of the Westray line of like you think you can live in this world and not be a part of it, right? But you you're wrong, counselor. Right. So embrace it. Don't don't shrink from it because that's that's even worse. Yeah, it's and it, like, will, it will rip you apart. You sort of have to embrace your who you are you can't you can't hide from who you are and, and what you've done you can't separate your actions from who you are and that's what he spent the whole movie trying to do exactly he, yeah. he trying to keep right. up the appearance as a as counsel as, as a very professional lawyer but he's also getting his hands dirty with the drug yeah scam gone wrong and who, and who knows what too because we left out this little bit i want to bring up before we move on to kind of some miscellaneous stuff is we have uh, and this is a good little bit of writing too is the 
confrontation with the younger gentleman, I think at the horse track yeah. or whatever. And he's kind of like, there's oh, a weird yeah. like antagonism going on. A former client of the counselors, which that sounds almost like a lie, but I kind of believe that there's some truth to it. Um, yeah. I think so. Yeah. The, the, this guy who's a little too drunk, he, he spots the counselor and he walks over and he starts berating him and, and, um, kind of, kind of ominously goading him, yeah. go like goading him and, and kind of like hitting on Penelope Cruz as a, as a way to humiliate him. But also there is a undercurrent of like legit warning there. Cause, uh, he, he just knows the counselor's a, a, a shifty, a, a coward in a sense, like a, a moral coward, I guess. I really love that. Even though I think the guy is the actor is like British, uh, his his accent was really good. I kind of he's I the inversion enjoyed, of Vestman. <laughs> I really like I really enjoyed that his that guy yeah. quite a bit. He kind of reminded me. Oh, maybe this is what it was. He fucking reminds me of Stevo in the face. Yes, so much. I was like, yes. I was trying oh, to think of it. Sure. And at first, I was going to go with Timothy mm. Oliphant as Hitman Agent Forty Seven, but <laughs> it's more it's it's like more Stevo for sure. He looks almost identical oh, to yeah. Steve-O. Yeah, that's so good. Yep. Yeah, I've seen him in a ton of stuff. I, I I cannot remember his name, but he is a good actor. Great, like, yeah, like character actor type. Um, so we'll hop into miscellaneous, of which I guess I'll lead us off because I didn't have a whole lot. I really think quick. Just, oh, it, go ahead. Toby Kebbell. Okay, that's right. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. He was in Warcraft. <laughs> Of course. Um, But yeah, miscellaneous bits about the film itself. I think uh, this kind of really didn't fit anywhere else, but I thought that overall the movie relied way too much on, on the music for emotion, emotional cues. And in particular, I think the very first meeting with Westray had this extremely like ominous soundtrack that was really kind of, to me, a little bit, distracting or like too kind of like i don't know it's like lazy filmmaking or cheap emotion like a cheap way to to use emotion rather than like being a you know using your skills as a director and relying on that like too much i did like the music a lot but it I, i think the most egregious example was in that um hotel pool scene between westray and the counselor um, when con- mm-hmm. the counselor is realizing just how much he's fucked and Westray's like, yeah, I'm getting the hell out of here. Like there's this really cool fitting music, but like they just, it's too loud, especially towards the end. Like when it starts swelling and everything, it's like, we get it. We yeah, get it. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, this is a, this is a tense moment. Like if, if it was much more under, if it was either a more understated score or if they just turned it way down, it would have worked so much better, Yeah. but so it, they just pumped it up. This is where I think camera work can do more like. You know what I mean? This mm-hmm. is where camera comes in and lighting right. are better ways to generate m- mood than like, oh, this very like, like again, eerie soundtrack of like, oh, okay, well, something. Right. it's kind of like a laugh track almost. Yeah. It's like, too, it's pushing you too much in the direction of, okay, this is like a tense. You're right. supposed to be on alert. Like this is ominous. Like there's some, there's a very important bit of truth that's coming to you. Pay attention to this scene, right? To pull up uh, the old reliable example again, I think no country has zero non-diegetic music in it i'm almost 100 percent. i think it does not have a score Mm -hmm. which is absolutely outstanding yes and impressive yes especially with with things like the shootout between between them in the hotel and and stuff like that good call out right 
yeah also the score just felt like a score for uh, like an older film yeah. even like a almost like an aughts film or like a 90s film like it just it was a really out of place score maybe in that's why i said there was so just moments. really quick maybe that's why i said like it felt like a 90s movie yeah i think so i think like especially um, thriller like you know what i mean like it's th- the kind of standard yeah. hollywood thriller does rely on that kind of like that music that almost like a, yeah. a, a callback to the hitchcock right right yeah except this this time it's bad uh (laughs) but i was uh quickly doing i i remembered his name so daniel pemberton is the composer he's a british composer and this was actually his uh breakthrough score uh he had done mostly television work and then this was his first uh non-tv or non-tv film score um so really i mean he's he's pretty new at uh doing scores what else he's done because i've definitely i've seen the name like i recognize the name and i don't think it's just because i've like internalized this from just watching the movie (laughs) it's it's um did you see king arthur legend of the sword oh hell yeah richie we will be watching that for program lewis coming up that's (laughs) the, the mma king arthur movie um yes yeah he did that one the man from uncle also guy richie like that a lot um yeah, it's supposed to be good. I don't know. the The music was good, but like, I, especially like the 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 scene, the 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 score over the credits, and like the score in that that West Ray um, yes. counselor scene that we were talking about. Like, those would be good in like a video game. I think <laughs> like they would play like like a Hitman <laughs> video game or like um, I don't know something, to, some kind of like interactive media. I could I could see Pemberton doing well there. Yeah. I think when it was definitely like um, just the guitar, you know, the very like Mexican t- guitar influence score, I think that's when it was at its mm. best. Um, and then everything else, like, it just kind of took me out. Like, there were moments where I was like, oh, what is, why are they playing this sure. right now? This does not sound, the, the soundtrack is actually pretty decent. The, the music that's played throughout certain songs, I think, are, are well placed. Um, but yeah, the, the score took me out. So sometimes. Pemberton also did The Boys. And what's the, oh, the no boys TV I, show. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, Birds of Prey, just to touch on comic books. Okay. A little bit there. Oh, sure, sure. And yeah. both of those are very recent too. Um, yeah. Um, a miscellaneous note that I noted um, at the end, the very last scene when when Malkina is with her banker friend, um, the banker's like, "Oh, what what happened to the cats? The two cheetahs that ran her head." And Melkina says, oh, the female died, but the male survived, which is for Fassbender and Penelope Cruz. Very analogous. Good imagery. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot here. Just, like, quirky little things that I, uh, I saw, like, when the first time that Fassbender goes to Bart Dem's house and they have a conversation in, like, his study... Uh, <laughs> Javier Bardem's character has books on his shelf called Cool Hotels <laughs> and Luck and Luxury House, which was actually written by Kanye West. <laughs> I feel like we're no, really? I'm, just, I'm talking shit. Yeah, there's yeah. That, oh man, that'd be incredible. <laughs> there's like the fucking uh, I'm just thinking about that line from one of the songs on the Cruel Summer where he's like, "I'll I'll buy the I'll move into the lobby of the hotel or some shit." I don't know that. Rainer Rain oh, had yeah, heavy yeah. Kanye energy in this movie. <laughs> I didn't yeah. think of that. Um, he also had a framed American flag behind him, behind oh, his desk. I didn't notice yeah. that. Yeah, it, it, it was like an older, old-timey, like, 13-star American flag or something. 
Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, that. And Louis, you have a, re- a great note here that I, I'm pissed I didn't pick up on in the church. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So when Cameron Diaz goes to the church uh, to for confession, there's two things I love about it. Um, when she goes to cross herself with the holy water, she uses her yeah. left hand. Uh, because she's not someone who's religious. She doesn't mm-hmm. understand what to do there. Very good catch. Very um, good catch. And then I also like that she sits down next to like the old ladies yeah. in the church who yes. all have like their, their heads covered, like these Bible and, thumpers. And at first she thinks like, no, I'm not going to. And then she's like, nah, fuck yeah. it. I'm sitting next and, to them. And she cuts them in line. <laughs> to go to the, they've been yeah, waiting yeah. there presumably for a while for confession. <laughs> and then she just right. walks right in. The, pr- the priest even yeah. says like there are other people waiting. She's like, I waited. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's a good scene. I mean, she's yeah. she's good in that scene. My only other really kind of relevant miscellaneous note is I think we Nick mentioned it was the women. There was a whole issue with in Juarez specifically of young women being killed violent, violently, raped, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So like this was a real phenomenon yeah. that was touched on in the film, and it was a lot of it was during like this whole you know kind of in the early to mid aughts the or i guess really the later aughts to early teens there was a lot of uh, cartel violence in juarez specifically and uh my it's funny actually in real life my stepfather is from juarez and i've actually been to juarez yeah went there in like two went there in like 2003 and and went out and like in the city and stuff and you know went to the rodeo and fucking yeah had some like street tacos and shit at like three in the morning and it's which was pretty cool and it was not quite what Juarez is known for today oh yeah this, this was well before this was like, like a decade before yeah. five to well maybe like maybe five three to four to five years before the cartel violence really ramped up otherwise right. like yeah like white dude like myself just rolling, wander, just rolling around in Juarez uh, yeah definitely <laughs> yeah. Could, was like a big <laughs> like oh here here I'm like waving a sign around like, hey, get, get bright, at me. Bright neon target. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that was like a good counterpoint because like if we want to take a kind of a class, like a global class analysis, look at that scene, like Fassbender's wandering through these people for whom this kind of violence is everyday life and directly as a right. result of capital, yeah. uh, oh, subversive, quote unquote, illegal capital, but still capital. Um, mm hmm. And, and like it, it destroyed his world, but it's completely a part of their world. I'm keeping with that many worlds reading. Um, and, and this is yeah. the scene where that that amazing shot I saw of like the, the armored police vehicle just <laughs> pointing its giant fucking cannon at them. Um, and again, it was, it was so quick, just half second, but like it between two scenes of like Fassbender wandering around into days, but it just it fits so perfectly because the police, the the. I guess, like on a broader level, like the the violence and the tension between the police and the cartel is what drives all this violence. And so, actually, interestingly enough, my stepfather's brother would receive threats frequently via the phone about his family. Damn. Like, we're going to come after your family. He was uh, he had vehicles stolen, all kinds of shit. My stepfather's family, like, okay, so. If you go to Juarez, it's like all the houses have these fucking gates yep. and shit like that. And some of them have like concertina wire, but some of them have just like these Coke bottles and like all in like really gnarly 
fucking Coke bottles. So like, like if you would try to climb over their fence, like you, you damn, know what I mean? like, it's, like it's broke, wild like shit. broken Coke bottles placed yes. upside down on the fence. Yeah, shit, like crazy looking shit like that. Um, or like you have a gated front section. So my stepdad's parents' house had like a porch, right? But the porch is behind this gate that's locked. And at one time they even had someone knocked on their door in the middle of the night and they were, they like feigned, oh, we need to use your phone or something. Shit. And so they eventually let them in. The They got robbed and like they had pulled guns on them. Damn. And like robbed them, left like, Damn. basically made like everybody like get on the floor at like gunpoint and shit. Wow. Yeah. So some, some real shit. <laughs> I feel implicated. If you, Jesus. I'm, I'm going to be killed too someday because I'm connected to you. Right. <laughs> so that was pretty. Well, we watched this movie, so we're already implicated. <laughs> yes, by the very We've virtue the of, film, of, of yeah. seeing it makes you complicit. It's like the ring. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really all I kind of had as far as miscellaneous. I don't know if we have. I think we kind just, of covered the remainder, right? Just a straight thought I had, like the idea yeah. of being complicit. Just to be watching something makes you complicit. That's it, kind of like a more poetic way of, of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Like just by virtue of viewing an action happen changes it happening. And I, I guess like the reverse of that, like it, by viewing an action happening, you're, you're changed by viewing it too. Like you, you can't do anything. You can't even look at something without both parties being fundamentally changed. Um, and and that, that that's kind of like this physical law of like, like like atomic on the atomic level, that's kind of passed into the cultural consciousness. That all that, and it also works here on a thematic level too. And and speaking of themes, that that's where we'll we'll, uh, we'll mm -hmm. wrap up the the episode today. And I the first thing that I came to mind was, and maybe this is particular to Ryan Reiner's dialogue specifically, very much made me question: Okay, is is McCarthy himself like a misogynist? Or is he expressing this kind of like very, you know, it's a very MRA, like red pill, uh, like vision of what women are. Right. Because he, what women are um, commodified for sure throughout the movie. Um, there, there's the obvious example with Reiner and he's like, oh, let's get women into the club and that's all you need to make it a success. Um, whereas Fassbender, right. he, he holds up um, Penelope Cruz as like, he commodifies her just as much. It's just the it's just the high end bougie version. It's like I'm gonna get you a diamond. I'm gonna keep you safe in a way and keep you like I I don't need these like dirty women because you're like more precious of a commodity. Um, and on the flip side of that, Malkina, she is alluded to having formerly been like a prostitute or some kind of sex worker. Um, that that's part mm -hmm. of her backstory, and it, it's left deliberately vague, but um, it it shows that. It, it, it's just more of the commodification of woman and woman's sexuality. In particular, Reiner has this bit of di this following kind of dialogue talking about how women lack moral sense. Mm. Women don't want to fix anything. They just want to be entertained. You can do anything to a woman except bore them, which I think is like women as the as like a very capricious. Uh, right. I'm trying to what's the other word? There's something better than just being capricious. It's like. There's like a certain cruel... Like fickle? There's, yeah, there's like a certain cruel um, element to women, and, and especially in the context mm. of like men. Like where men are sort of like the plaything of... And that sort of ties into Malkina being right. this kind of puppet master. 
very very cat like along with her the way she's presented and with the cheetahs and everything like playing playing with her prey before killing it and one even wonders like i wonder to me is that like the whole it feels like a lot of the film was malkina orchestrating their them like fassbender and and reiner at as sort of just this for kind of like no reason like just this game that she plays with with them right because she's aware like she's double she's a, like a double agent in many ways yeah i guess like a, like a, a very very truncated kind of sketch of the plot like fassbender uh brad pitt and, and reiner they all try to get in on this cocaine deal make money and then use it for for their purposes uh the deal goes sour the the cocaine is stolen by third parties um and fassbender when ruthie's cartel son is killed it is assumed that he is involved with stealing the money so the cartel goes after all of them um in malkina she had tried the the way i read it she was trying to get the cocaine but it it slipped through her fingers right so as a way to kind of get a consolation prize she sends she sends out cartel people to go kill all three of the men and in doing so she gets um westray's bank information and gets his money that he had just saved up over the course of his career she 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 gets Mm -hmm. that consolation prize um because the cocaine is just kind of like lost to the world like the some other cartel well, is gets it, it i thought there and it was a bit muddled you know it might take another watch or two but i felt like the cart the original cartel ended up actually retrieving the drugs at the end and that was sort of like uh, also the irony so. of the whole thing was like okay this was all like not only you have this coincidence with fassbender but also like the cartel literally gets winds up retrieving the cocaine in the end so it was all so, kind of like point like their whole thing was okay so they for nothing and and the reason they're coming after fassbender is because he tried they think he tried to fuck with them right I yeah get, i think you. so okay yeah i think that's accurate that's how i yeah. read it at least um because like in the beginning when they have like the chop shop where they plant the cocaine in the um the septic waste uh also, great image, transporting it, drugs in literal human shit. Yes. In, in literal human shit. Um, I, I thought it was pretty similar to when they take the cocaine out and they, like, scrub the, the car down. Like, it kind of seemed like it was the same facility, more or oh, less. Oh, right, yeah. So, I, I read it as the same the same cartel, just sure. checking yeah. back And I shit. thought that was, like, the great irony and the kind of, like, right. nihilistic element to this whole thing was, like... Right. So, when you have, like, Malkina is sort of just and having fun fucking them both over and then like the other irony of like they ended up their whole they wound up getting their drugs back so there was really no point to any of the deaths that occurred right other than to right go extreme and fuck with anyone who would try to fuck with them right yeah yeah Yeah, keeping up appearances to it that's Mm -hmm. another thing is westray mentions about in particular the snuff film yeah he says you know, it's not like there's any kind of. This is just to keep up appearances. It's not like it's there's any. Have, yeah, it's not to. like there's any burning rage at the heart of right. this or whatever. Right. Which is like a yeah, funny, like very irony. Yeah. Like, I think you can read that multiple ways, which I think yeah. is super interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which also brings me to as well this kind of like weird dialectical tension in the film between like this kind of very bleak nihilistic element capriciousness like we're sort of at the hands of a 
of capricious gods, but also going back to the the line about you know the brevity of our lives won't won't diminish us too, and sort of you have that that's like a tension I feel like thematically that runs throughout the film because you have like I said that super bleak elements, but also like this sort of hopeful aspect too. I don't know. It is hopeful, um, but it like it kind of crumbles in the face of what happens to the counselor because like he he doesn't die. His life isn't as brief as most other people, most other characters in the film, but um, it he is diminished. Just like I don't know, maybe maybe like like it's saying that like a brief life is is isn't diminished whereas a, a, a longer one would be like his mm, yeah or it's like a you know a kind of a, a bait and switch switch on mccarthy's part right so like he's like oh yeah here's like this hopeful sentiment and then like ah nah just kidding right. fuck you you're all gonna die or at least a lot of people you love are gonna die and uh it's yeah it's all <laughs> gonna be shit sorry it's all shit counselor it's all shit <laughs> um some other elements and maybe, maybe actually this would I think we discussed this a little bit. We kind of da- I danced around this a bit, but I almost got the question or like impression that Malkina was representing a deity or whether she was, I don't know if she was God or she was the devil or some combination of, of them. The, the mm. satanic imagery is definitely um, highlighted by her, her appearance in the church, right? Like, just this this demonic spirit that whirls into town, visits the church, mocks the priest, technically doesn't even cross herself when she comes in, uh, and, and then just kind of like right. blows away in the next whirlwind. It it, it felt very kind of um like old, old like like you were saying the Old Testament kind of old school. There are many demons and spirits out there, and Yahweh is merely the one that we choose to yeah. to worship. Like Job, Job. Yes, the story of Job was very much in the back of my mind throughout the film. I mean that would mm. that would imply that Fassbender somehow bounces back from this, which I think I don't think is that. right. But I mean, like at least the <laughs> kind of the vibe of you know your sort of ru- like, ruination, yeah. Like the guy, whether e- even though mm-hmm. you know Job right. was made whole in the end, the fact that we're kind of like at the mercy of these kind of yeah. dumb, like yeah, the devil, oh, like oh, hey God, yeah, exactly, hey, you hey, fucking, hey, think, bud, what you are, think you're hot stuff, bro? What are we gonna do this decade? <laughs> like, what's, what what shenanigans <laughs> are we getting up to? You, you see Job there? I bet if you fucked him up, yeah. he would curse you. Yep. Let's try it out. Let's see what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something too, like even better than that was, I think, this discussion of, and this was part of Reuben Blade's monologue is the idea that grief trend grief is dialectic and that it transcends value, but it is also it's worthless. Like it it transcends the normal exchange value that and that's kind of tied to like a capitalist, you know, ex- system of exchange. Or I've actually been reading for a podcast that I'm recording tomorrow, um Baudrillard's uh, symbolic exchange and death where this is very kind of prominent this idea of like death being the dividing line between the living and the dead obviously and how that there's a certain symbolic exchange going on in terms of the dead because in our society the dead are like like we push death outside of it's it's not normal to die Mm. in our culture 
which is a like kind of reversal, but to, you know, more primitive human history where like yeah. death was very much like in your face at all, at all times, you know, particularly in a, part, in a part of life, a part of daily life. Yeah. Even. There was right. no way to push out the, the dead or the concept of death. Like it was very much ever present, but now like in our society, it's very much pushed out. And like I said, it's an, it's an anomaly now to die, yeah. which really kind of, I think ties into our moment with the coronavirus and the deaths that are, you know, that are happening as a result of that. You know what I mean? That's kind of brings to fore that, that notion, I think very prominently. Yeah. And, um, the, the metatextual example that we were going to tie in from before, uh, Tony Scott, he, he commits, committed suicide. Um, I think Lewis, you were saying like during the production of this movie, I think it was during the production of this film, which is, which is yeah. I think it was 2012, yeah, which is wild. <laughs> it's a crazy, crazy yeah. thing. And, um, yeah. I, w- I was thinking of in the movie's course dedicated to him. I, w- I was thinking of that when Fassbender got when when he found the snuff film and he he realized that his fiance is dead. Um, like I, like I wonder what Ridley Scott how he acted when when he found out that his his brother killed himself while he right. was working on a movie because his brother was also a director too. Like like, like we've been touching on mm-hmm. so like yeah. that that awareness of death and like the the brevity of of existence, especially overlapping existence. Um, the, the, the very director of the film was like affected by it while doing this, which is pretty, pretty definitely unintentional, but pretty powerful. No, it's, it's, it's wild to think about. Um, you know, I imagine, um, it, it didn't change probably, um, the, the script itself. Cause I'm sure McCarthy wrote this years ago, but I, I mean, I'm sure it, it changed some of, uh, uh, Ridley Scott's directorial choices, uh, after that moment. Uh, cause my understanding is, yeah, it happened during production. He flew out to LA where, uh, Tony Scott and Tony Scott's family had lived, uh, before his death and then he flew back to Europe to film it I think London at that point they were doing the these the scenes um, in London towards the end of the film um, so yeah I mean uh, it's, uh, it's somewhat unbelievable to think um, that it, it ties so uh, well into the themes of this film if you'll both indulge me I want to read a bit from Symbolic Exchange and Death just to oh please because like I said because Hefe yeah. is speech really kind of ties into this idea of symbolic exchange and death, yeah. uh, particularly. So here we go. So it is with death. Death is ultimately nothing more than the social line of demarcation separating the dead from the living. Therefore, it affects both equally against the endless, senseless illusion of the living, of willing the living to the exclusion of the dead, against the illusion that reduces life to an absolute surplus value by subtracting death from it. The indestructible logic of symbolic exchange reestablishes the equivalence of life and death in the indifferent fatality of survival. In survival, death is repressed. Life itself, in accordance with that well-known ebbing away, would be nothing more than a survival determined by death. So I don't know. To me, that maybe I'm just making random connections, but I felt there was... There was something about that discussion of the about grief not having the same 
exchange val- or like a transcending yeah. value. And I think that's very much so in the context of like the exchange of capitalism that yeah. we experience, like in our modern capitalist exchange versus in a more primitive, like anthropological sense, like in more primitive human cultures, how exchange worked, whether it be like, and even the diamonds as well uh, play into this tr- too, because yeah. we have the diamonds represent right. the cash. They're, they're an easy way to transport the 20 million, as Malkina says. That's explicitly said, yeah. Right. So there's like that element of the mm-hmm. diamond being this symbolic exchange element, this commodity form, but also the diamond representing the symbolic exchange of of Penelope Cruz, like the women, like that's kind of the element of exchange right. like from an anthropological sense too is mm-hmm. different tribes, like that's how they would, you know, the symbolic exchange of the women and the diamond representing that as well, kind of like as a nod to that prior, more primitive element of human culture. It's sort of, you know what I mean? It's sort of like a relic or a callback to that idea. Yeah. Like this representational form of what love or, you know what I mean? Fidelity, et cetera, et cetera, is represented in this symbolic way. In Malkina as the devil figure, the more the more satanic figure she when she's she looks at it she looks at it out of curiosity but kind of contempt and playfulness in the same way that she asks Penelope Cruz about going to church she's like oh let me see the ring I want to I want to see it and she can tell right away she can like examine it and, and quantify it she like gives the carrots and, right. and everything she she lists yeah. she she mm-hmm. lists its value out right away but then she's like yeah this is this is like cute and she gives it back she's being very much like she's right. definitely using a capitalist mode of 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 exchange value. Many times throughout the film, because she she literally hands money to people at multiple points throughout the film too. She like pays them off, and she has that right. like. There's the contrast between I think maybe Penelope Cruz is representing that more primitive element of of exchange, that symbolic exchange that you might see, versus like this very capital this capitalist yeah. mode. Yeah that's totally divorced from like actual like use values. But I guess the diamond too is, is that as well. It's the diamond is a completely it's a bullshit. Manifest, manifestation yeah. of that. It's a totally like in itself, mm. it has no real value. Like you can't eat that shit, but it can store, like it can represent value within capitalism. Yep. It can represent $20 million in cash. Yep. So I think just kind of right. underscoring that like whole kind of bullshit baseless aspect of our current, <laughs> like political economy or mode of production and all of that. And then I think one last thematic element that I wanted to bring up, and it's kind of a, even like a throwaway thought, but the uh, Bruno Gans monologue about the diamonds too, um, he mentions that, and we seek only imperfection in the context of the diamond, mm-hmm. which I thought was an interesting reversal because he said too, like if, okay, a diamond without flaws, but would essentially be a pure form of, of light. So it's these flaws that he points out to the counselor in terms of like, there's like a cloudy bit or something within the diamond. Those are the, that is what makes the diamond truly, like that's what sort of imbues it with a value or why we seek it out. Yeah. Contrasting that between the discussion of, that Reiner goes into about, you know, women want to f- th- women think that they can fix men yeah he says that does he say that explicitly I think? yeah he, yeah yeah 
he does. He goes like, mm-hmm. or no, he's like, like women will often think that they can change men. Men reckon or like men recognize that they, like they can't they can't be changed. I don't know. There's something, mm-hmm. there's something there. But um, it made me feel like this kind of Lacanian notion of of desire that is like this weird kind of like psychoanalytic reading that is kind of like against the grain that I think maps onto this idea of the imper- it's the imperfection of the diamond yeah. that makes it desirable rather than its perfection. Right. And the idea of this diamond as this inherently useless thing, that's it, it, it's a bubble that has money or capital invested into it is what flips that because we want our investments to be perfect. So we try to look for the things that aren't perfect about them. And then I think interesting to look at that too in the sense of uh, Penelope Cruz's character because she is like ostensibly the flawless diamond. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. But yet, and then like contrast that with Malkina who has the imperfections, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. And Reiner kind of, he talks about that throughout. I mean, he even says like he's, he's scared of her, doesn't he, at one point? Um, because she's so unpredictable, because she's, uh, you know, capricious. Um, and, uh, you know, especially with that scene, uh, the the car sex scene, when he, he describes how she got on the, the, the windshield of his car and, and, and she rubbed herself uh, against it uh, uh, in a very sexual act, and uh, how that was um something that basically like frightened him and and made him realize he didn't know who this person was at all but at the same time that's what draws him to her that that you know sexual imperfection or or that that sexual deviancy um which i think is definitely that that flaw yeah that's the danger of her is what's so very alluring about her to him even though he and he even kind Mm -hmm. of like recognizes his own like being trapped in that kind of relationship yeah i think he's resigned to it but he i mean he clearly doesn't care that much yeah right (laughs) which i will just say one last this will be my joke is what would you do if i asked you to fuck a car (laughs) (laughs) the scene is it's truly wild i mean we've already described it but like it yeah it almost feels like it's from a different movie, but the the movie shifts in tone by the by the end. So it, I think, I think it, mm-hmm. yeah, it works. It, it, it works. It is it is very strange and comes out of nowhere, though. But uh, I think it's it, really funny it too that just in that sense, it's like this old man McCarthy who's probably like in his eighties. I would I would think is like <laughs> yeah. writing the be, car yeah. fucking scene. Hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> There's a certain like sick irony that I you know I really enjoy that. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine that happened yeah, to him, right? like it one day. Have. Like imagine <laughs> in his younger years that actually happened to he him. He actually lived in, or he might still live in. I think he actually lives in El Paso, to this day. Huh. Wow. But um, any other any other thoughts that we haven't covered? I think we've pretty thoroughly. Mm. We've uh, we've taken the diamond, the rough, the diamond and the rough at the beginning, yeah. and we fucking. <laughs> <laughs> we pointed out its imperfections. Yet another cinematic it's a lure to us. Yet another cinematic parallel. Um, 
I kind of interpret the the ring with the diamond as, as a cursed jewel, kind of just like a uncut gems, the the black oh, yeah. Um, opal. Yeah, the opal. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It uh, it. It, it is a cursed jewel. It is a cursed object in a very like mythological, traditional sense. But like, it, it's not literal, blatant, right. over in your face, stupid video game curse. It's which just is like, good, yeah. which which is perfect. Which is my shit. Which is, it's it's as mm. magic as you want it to be, and right. um, it's it, it still is, yeah. Yeah. Does that? I think we're done. Yeah. I think does that wrap us up? I think that's done. That was. Um, yeah. I think so. I think that's nice. the good stuff. Well, either who, whomever wants to take the lead for for you guys in terms of uh, do do your plugs, do your fucking plugs. <laughs> Fuck my car. <laughs> Fuck my podcast. <laughs> um, uh, Lewis, you go for it because I, I you, I've taken the past few and when I was on. Well, I I just I looked up what our Patreon is because I I never remember it. Um, so proletarian contrarian, uh, we do a podcast weekly, uh, our podcast should be out the, uh, same day as this one, mm-hmm. actually Monday, the 11th, I believe. Um, our Patreon is patreon.com slash pro underscore con. Um, check it out. Um, we are on Facebook and Twitter Instagram as too. well. Instagram. Yep. And yeah, uh, just in a really quick plug, yeah. the the episode that comes out the same day, it, it does kind of tie in. It's um, Martin Scorsese's second film, Boxcar Bertha, which is a historical kind of crime on the road uh, story about the titular character kind of in- encountering the the capriciousness of fate and um and and struggling and living within that. Um, there, there, there's a few there's a few common common elements there. Yeah, I think so. Um, it'd be a good double feature. The Counselor and Boxcar <laughs> yeah. Bertha, folks. Check them out. <laughs> uh, well, Lewis, I, great to have you on. We'll have to we'll have to do this again now that I'm like using my brain and thinking yes. how much better this <laughs> even is. I mean, I always like not to... Yeah. Nick always has great insights and catches shit that I don't, which uh-huh. is what, why I loved doing these with him. But um, you as well. I mean, I think it's it's nice. It's like helps fill in. Thank like, you. Um, we had a really, I think, a really good podcast. Lewis is definitely. We fucking like had our the little, film half. We had like our jewel, our little jeweler fucking yes. thing on this thing. <laughs> yes, and we, we did. We flipped it. We looked at Hell every yeah. little detail. Yeah, pretty thoroughly. Uh, so I, I'm really happy with the way the discussion turned out. So thank you both again. Yeah, it was fun. It was. It was good. Yeah. Anytime, Thanks for having we'll me. Definitely have to do this again. Um, oh yeah, love to come watch back it. anytime. I'm not doing anything else besides my own <laughs> we can, podcast. We can, so. we can watch another good movie for a change <laughs> as opposed to the, the tripe that we usually watch. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, next time, uh, just throw a bunch of good movies at yeah. us and we'll pick one of those. We won't have to do a, a quote-unquote right. crossover episode. But I mean, I, I did, my, my point was, like, I, I did enjoy this. kind of. It was kind of a surprise enjo- enjoyment, oh, yeah. kind of like Boxcar mm-hmm. Bertha, which is another connection there. Two, two movies I, I enjoyed for on the same day podcast. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, this, I was, um, I was not expecting to enjoy The Counselor as much as I did. Um, so. Nice. And I, I genuinely think, like, go check it out if you're interested in, like, just anything we just talked about, you know, um, sorry, I don't know if you heard that ridiculous fucking motorcycle (laughs) behind me. Nah. But. If you're interested in anything we just talked about, it's, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll deliver. it'll, It'll. yeah, it'll, it'll do something for um, you. But just as a reminder for uh, my listeners or in, anyone that's checking this out, um, you can definitely would appreciate 
if you if you could throw me a dollar, if you feel so inclined, um, you can find my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. You can find the podcast Twitter feed at UnconsciousHH, as well as the Instagram at UnconsciousHH. But uh, this is going to be Cooper Cherry with the uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off for the week. Peace. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity. That was awesome. That was really good.